From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, I'm sure that uh, we agree that uh, we, we could all not be happier with the progress that DeMar Hamlin is making in a hospital in Cincinnati. He's at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and apparently uh, he is awake. He is alert. He asked uh, about the result of the game after waking up. He's communicating with doctors in writing, not able to speak yet. But uh, doctors at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center saying today that he's made, quote, unquote, substantial progress in the last 24 hours. So much so that he wanted to know who won the game. Now, I'm sure the NFL is happy about that part of it because it kind of signals to the rest of us, hey, it's okay to start thinking about football again. But I don't want to do that yet. I want to be in. I don't want to be in a situation where we immediately pivot. And go, hey, Demar's asking about football, so he's asking, "Did we win?" Um, you're awake, so I'll take the W, Demar. But I, I also think the NFL is going to tread lightly here, as they've got a player who still remains in the ICU unit, and I think a lot of people praying and hoping that Demar Hamlin would wake up or uh, happy today. I'm happy today. The eight-year-old and our household is happy today. She came home from school today jubilant uh, about the news and about the fact that uh, she wrote a paper in her school uh, about why Greyhound uh, racing should be outlawed. And that's, that was the subject of conversation when she came through the door. But, uh, you know, you're talking about a player in the last three days who has captured the hearts and the minds and the attention of America and pivoted from a sports story into a news story very quickly. We've talked about this thing from all different angles, from the NFL's angle, from player safety angles, from uh, you know broadcast angles, from fan angles. And my hope moving forward is that when players are down on the field at games, that we all sort of remember, not move on so quickly. Jamar Hamlin's awake, games are going to happen again, but not move on so quickly to uh, just sort of dismissing, like drag the player out of the way so the game can continue. Um, player safety still on the minds of people, mental health and and uh, the wellness of players and the unity of players, all those things have become talking points in the last 72 hours. But, man, after Monday night and what we saw, and let's go back to Monday because, remember, Monday was essentially a holiday. It was January 2nd. It was, uh, you know, the Rose Bowl happened on a Monday because – the Rose Bowl is not held on a Sunday when January 1st falls on a Sunday. So, you know, earlier in the day you get Tulane and USC. Kind of had this football marathon going on on Monday. And then you had, uh, you know, had a big hit in that Tulane-USC game as well that probably was targeting, that was not called at the end of the game. And then then came Utah and, and uh, Penn State in the Rose Bowl. And we saw Cam Rising, the quarterback at Utah, uh, he knocked out of the game, second t- straight time that he's been knocked out of a Rose Bowl. And a reminder, too, of the fragility of college athletes. Uh, it's out there as well. And then came Monday Night Football. And it almost, you know, was like stacked domino to domino. And television does this to us. And the television executives will tell you, like, when they are plotting out potential college football playoff games when the playoff expands, there's going to be a problem. 
because some of the college football playoff will overlap with the NFL playoffs, which op- often happen on Saturdays. And so they're going to be looking at different and creative times to kick off games. And there's been some talk about moving the college football season up a week so it doesn't conflict as much with the NFL schedule when that happens. But, you know, we had this Monday that was stacked game upon game upon game, and it was heaven for a lot of people. And I'll tell you, like, the TV just remained on in our living room as Monday Night Football started, and that's how the 8-year-old and I ended up sitting down kind of watching the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. They were just about to kick off. She said, Dad, who's the better team? I said, I don't know. You tell me who the better team is. She looked at the records. She says, the Bills are better, but the Bengals are at home. She says, I'll take the Bengals tonight. And that's kind of what we do. She picks a team, I pick a team, and then we kind of see how it plays out during the game. But, you know, as it happened in your living room, and it happened in my living room, Monday changed, and Monday was different. And I found myself conflicted as a parent, and I even asked Anna, I said, am I a bad parent? for allowing her to kind of see the replay, the continued replay of DeMar Hamlin, you know, up on his feet and then falling backwards, up on his feet and falling backwards. And ESPN kept showing it and showing it and showing it because, you know, it wasn't their fault. Like, they didn't know at the time that we were talking about a player who was going to, within minutes, be the subject of CPR and an ambulance on the field and all of that. So, um, you know, a wide berth for everybody here, broadcasters included, but it was evident on Monday night that we all got some perspective. And I hope we don't quickly lose that perspective. I hope we appreciate and, you know, continue to pray for DeMar Hamlin and others who are injured and hurt and we and, and family members of those as well. And that we remember, like, when we are complaining about injuries in the NFL and player injuries in particular, and we are kind of looking at, you know, a roughing the passer penalty that may have been a little bit on the delicate side or a targeting call that we go oh man this game it's not football anymore remember how you felt on Monday night when DeMar Hamlin went down and how quickly it pivoted from being an NFL football game into a news story into you know people on social media and people watching the game very quickly kind of going hey this is bigger than football and you know I made the point like Troy Aikman said you know, at this point, it becomes bigger than football. I was like, no, no, no. It, it, it's always people have always been bigger than football. You know, the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, NBA, whatever. You know, at some point, those entities will probably cease to exist in their current form. It won't go on and on forever and ever. Like something else will replace it eventually, someday, or it'll morph into something else someday, eventually. But what will continue to go on are people and humanity. And I, I was, I was, you know, my faith was restored in people on Monday night as I jumped on social media. And here we are 72 hours later, and Demar Hamlin is apparently awake, and he's communicating with doctors. And, you know, that's a major victory. So I'm feeling good about that. I hope you are as well. I hope his family is feeling encouraged as well. I hope his recovery continues. He's got a long road in front of him. Um, They're saying his neurological condition and function is intact. That is wonderful to hear because that, you know, anytime you have somebody getting CPR, you wonder about oxygen to the brain. You wonder about uh, damage and, uh, you know, neurological impact there, but apparently, according to the Bills, DeMar Hamlin appears to be, uh, you know, awake and alert, and uh, he appears to be communicating with people. So uh, this is great. Um, You know, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to take the news reports that the first thing he asked about was who won the game. 
Because, you know, I, I think the NFL probably wants that out there, probably wants you and I to talk about that and to make that the focus. But I'm sure there were some other things on his mind. And and I'll, I'll be eager to hear, you know, the first interview that he gives when he's able to give an interview or when he begins to talk about what happened to him and what he remembers of that night. I'll be curious to see, like, how soon after he woke up he really did think, hey, who won the game? Because – I don't know about you guys, Stephen, Peter. Like That wouldn't have been my first question, waking from a medically induced coma in the ICU. It might have been on my mind if I'm DeMar Hamlin. might have been one of the first questions. But you know, I know that it's a, it just feels a little tidy that that was the first thing that he asked about. Like the first thing would ask, I would be wondering is what the hell happened here? What am I doing in the hospital? Yeah, uh, I, I had read something that said he did ask, like they asked him if he remembers the game or remembers what happened to him. He had no idea what had happened to him on the field. Didn't know why he was in the hospital. Um, so yeah, I find it a little particular that they uh, said that was the first thing he asked because that definitely wouldn't be my first thought is hey did we win the game and I was like why am I here like what is going on but um, you know it is a good sign I think though John also to say that because at least he remembers that there was a game right and so his memory right. is working and I think that's I you know and that's the way I took it I didn't take it as like it's, it seemed too much of a movie like oh who won the game like that's that's the one question no like I just took it as a very positive sign that he remembers that there was a game so yeah, a little weird. I think the NFL does want it out there, but uh, good signs all in all. It's good. I mean, I and I and I think it would be like, you know, was it the second thing he thought about or the third thing he thought about? Fine, I don't care. We're splitting hairs. But the doctor, one of the University of Cincinnati doctors that's caring for him, Timothy Pitt, Pritz is his name, said that the question about the outcome of the game is important for, for from a medical standpoint because it shows that not only are the lights on, but he's home, and that was Pritz's quote. Like the lights are on, and he's home because he's, you know, he's uh, cognizant of the fact that he played in a game on Monday night. And uh, you know, Pritz told him, you know, you won the game of your life. You know, basically uh, that improvement and the fact that you're awake uh, and you're alive and still in this world, uh, big, big win for the for the Buffalo Bills. Big win for football fans, humanity, and, of course, Tamar Hamlin and his family. Peter Sampson, uh, you, you uh, are awakened from a medically induced coma. Are you going to ask who won the Blazer game last night, or what would your question be? I mean, personally, I might, but, I, I mean, I'm, I can sort of believe that that's his first question, but you got to bear in mind, it's probably after he's been asked about 30 questions and he's answering right. them, and then they go, well, do you have any questions for us? Uh, yeah. You say I played a game. Who won? Yeah, because the New York Times piece said, you know, had the doctor quoted a little different than the Cincinnati Inquirer piece. Like the Cincinnati Inquirer piece was very, it was very romanticized. Like, you know, on his net, on his bedside nightstand, you know, a note written to a nurse with a question, you know, did we win? Um, you know, the doctor actually, his actual quote was, quote, when he asked, did we win? The answer is yes. We told him he did win. Um, so. It leads me to believe that there was some other communication prior to him asking, you know, did we win? At the, you know, but again, we're splitting hairs here. It's great that he's awake. Uh, we have so much to talk about on today's show, but I wanted to start the show by talking about that. Let's not forget. Let's give the officials a wide berth. Like, I'm going to try to remember that when I see a targeting call and I go, oh, was that targeting? What are they doing to this game? I hate this rule or roughing the passer. Why are they protecting the quarterbacks in such a way? Let's remember that part of the focus of both college football and the NFL right now, secondarily 
has been a focus uh, and, and I think is becoming a bigger focus is the wellness of the players and the safety of the players on the field. Violent game, people get knocked out, people get knocked down, and we saw somebody uh, almost die on the field on Monday night. And let's keep that in mind while we're bellyaching about targeting and roughing the passer. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about the Blazers. They laid an egg last night. Poor effort from the Blazers. I was struggling with words right there. Just, uh, you know, I didn't know what a dismal effort, poor effort, weak effort from the Blazers last night. We'll talk about it. Today's show is going to have kind of an interesting focus. I'm bringing on two national recruiting experts. Greg Biggins, who's an analyst for 24-7 Sports, is going to talk to us probably more specifically about DJ Uyunglele, who is going to Oregon State as a quarterback. He knows him. He was you know, around and reporting about his initial recruiting when he chose Clemson. He's been around that family. I'm going to ask Biggins about DJ. Later in the show, Brandon Huffman, the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports, will be with us. He's in San Antonio now where he's watching the All-American Bowl and seeing some of the best high school players in America play. I'm going to ask him to give us the lay of the land in the Pac-12 conference. Sandwiched in the middle of that, Connor Letourneau. Uh, NBA writer for the San Francisco Chronicle had a fantastic piece on Draymond Green. And sort of Draymond Green coming out of the preseason and all the mess and punched his teammate and sort of reinventing himself again. We're going to talk about the Warriors, the NBA, Draymond Green. All of this on today's show. You got the BFT. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I thought yesterday's show was really good. It was a little different. We had John Strong, uh, the Fox Sports soccer lead broadcaster for Fox Sports, the voice on the World Cup. He was with us uh, for about an hour and a half on yesterday's show, right in the middle of the show. Uh, had a lot of fun picking his brain, talking with him about his experiences and his growth and uh, his trajectory and what it's like to be a broadcaster in general uh, with big games like that. I'm a little more critical of the broadcasters that, uh, you know, he's in that group, that group of broadcasters. I don't think he's publicly going to call out Skip Bayless or Shannon Sharp or he's not going to call out Troy Aikman or uh, Joe Buck who were on the Monday Night Football broadcast. Uh, I wanted a little more from Aikman on Monday night. It's a guy who left the sport due to concussions. I wanted him to talk about that, you know, and, and you know, granted, it was uh, an unexpected and unforeseen event on Monday night on uh, as the Bills and the, and the Bengals were playing. But, uh, you know, that's kind of what I was looking for in that moment was his expertise and his personal experience. Uh, we will uh, talk to Greg Biggins, the national recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports, coming up at 4 o'clock. Connor Letourneau of the San Francisco Chronicle will be here at 4.30 to talk about Draymond Green and the NBA. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I, uh, I want to talk about the Blazers. They, they were a no-show last night. Uh, a lot of Blazer fans on my timeline upset with uh, the performance they lose to Minnesota. 113 to 106. Uh, they are in jeopardy of falling into a 500 position tomorrow. They're at Indiana. This was a W as I looked at the schedule in my book. 
and a I thought a poor effort by the Blazers. How do you explain this one, Peter Sampson and Steven? Yeah, I mean, to me, it looked from the, the tip that they just didn't show up to play. And it's one thing, they had 16 or 17 turnovers. That's not a good number. It's not an absolutely atrocious number. But if you look at the way that they turned the ball over, Minnesota, I mean, there was a little bit of defensive pressure there. But they were just throwing many of the ball or kicking it out of bounds. I mean, just really silly unfocused stuff, and I think that's the best way you could describe last night's game is unfocused. And look, the Blazers have some talent. They have an ability to really buckle down and win some games. We saw it earlier this season, especially the way they were doing it, but they're not good enough that they can take days off. This isn't going to be a 55-win team where then you can go, you know what, we're on the road, We're take, we can take it easy, we're playing a, you know, a team that's just a gimme. The Blazers do not have that luxury, and they showed it last night. They didn't even really look like they were trying. Yeah, they they didn't play well. They didn't execute very well offensively. No ball movement, and when they got open shots, they didn't make it. So it, they weren't working the ball around to get the open shot. And then even when they did get, you know, the few rare open shots they had, they didn't na- they didn't make them. So you know, nine for twenty nine, thirty one percent from three. Dame struggles from beyond the arc again, two for nine, seven for eighteen shooting. Like it was just one of those games where it just seems like it's the same old Blazers. Right, and that's for the Blazers to win. Dame, Jeremy Grant, and Anthony Simons have to have big games. They all have to score really well, or else this team doesn't win because the bench hasn't provided much. Shaden Sharp had a nice game last night. But besides him, they got nobody else off the bench. And then Nurk and Josh Hart aren't necessarily those scores that you expect every night. So it's it's those three guys: Grant, Simons, Dame, that have to outscore the other team. And it's just the same old thing every year, John. And it's just getting frustrating because. This is a game like you know, like you said, the Blazers should have won this game. The Timberwolves didn't play well enough to win this game, and Portland just let them win it. Right. You look at the schedule, and there's just some games where you go, okay, that's a game that I have them winning. That that last night game was a game I have them winning, and they lost it. I don't like that they had 16 turnovers. I don't like that they got beat in the paint, 54 to 38. Um, and they, you're right. You're both right with the shooting. I mean, they just did not shoot very well. 31 percent from three. Last night, and uh, you know they'll come back against Indiana uh, tomorrow, and uh, as part of this road trip. And if they lose that game, they're at 500. I think it's an important game. I think you, I think you need to keep your head above the water if you're the Blazers right now, even on the road. Yeah, you absolutely have to. I mean, you look how bunched up the Western Conference is. Uh, you know, just a loss or two will get you into the playing position. But more importantly, I don't think that's going to last forever. You have to, uh, before last night's game, I was looking at the next 15-game stretch, and I'm thinking, realistically, okay, it finally eases up 10-5. and five. Well, now 9-6 and six is, is what I'm looking yeah. at. I think they're going to beat Indiana, but if they don't, I mean, that might be a signifier of even bigger problems here in what's supposed to be kind of a breather month for the Trailblazers. Yeah. The, yeah. Oh, sorry. The last, no, last 10 or no. 15 games, I don't think Chauncey Billups has done a very good job. And you look at last night, they only generated 19 catch-and-shoot threes, which is the lowest they've had uh, in the game. They only knocked down five of them. So, like, they're not running offense. They're not playing good defense. And I understand that some of the some of it is personnel. A lot of it is the personnel on the roster. But Chauncey's got to do some things differently. You go back even to the Golden State game in the fourth quarter. They blew that game because the last five minutes they basically just ran iso ball and ran no offense. And then they they lost the game at the very end. Another you know game last night where if the coach can put him in the right spot, they're going to get that win. So I, I put a little bit on Chauncey right now, and I think Chauncey deserves a little heat because. This team played really well to start of the year, and we saw what they can do, and now they're just falling back down to what they've always done. Can Chauncey Billups coach? Do we know yet? Like I know at the beginning, at last season, it was like you know mixed bag, mixed reviews. 
And then early in this season, I heard people saying, Chauncey's really coaching. And now here we are, and the team's sort of fallen back a little bit. I, I don't know if the sample size is big enough to make sweeping generalizations with him, and I think he's still a fairly young, new head coach in his first job. But can, do you guys think he's the guy? Is he, is he capable? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Early in the season, it seemed like every button he pushed worked, right? Whether you're going to go zone for a couple possessions or you're going to go small ball and put maybe a Jeremy Grant or even, you know, I, I guess it wouldn't be Trendon Watford, but one of those forwards at center and kind of throw the other team for a loop. But you always have to have a counter because eventually teams are going to scout that out and it takes less time than you think for opponents to figure it out. And I don't know if he hasn't developed a counter, if it's uh, players sort of being lax and he's not necessarily holding them accountable to a degree because he's certainly more... Uh, willing to hold players accountable in the media than Terry Stotts was, but that doesn't necessarily indicate what's going on behind uh, closed doors. So it's too early to tell, and there's so much to goes into coaching. He hasn't been around long enough. We don't know how he can develop young guys. We don't know, you know, a whole lot of things. We know that Dame's good with him, and he seems to be good with the, uh, you know, the big egos of uh, superstars, but I just don't think we have a big enough sample size to know if he can counter, he can continue to push the right buttons over the course of a season, let alone a playoff series. Yeah, it's too early to know, but what I will say is, is there's signs that he needs to improve and needs to adjust. So I, I think there's signs that he's done a really good job, but it's still way too early. But I, there also is the point you know that I want to make is the roster still has a lot of work to yep. be done to it. And so it's almost like the Terry Stotts thing. Like Terry Stotts got the Blazers to certain certain levels, and he probably shouldn't have based on that roster. The roster still isn't a complete great roster, and Chauncey's doing the best with what he has to work with. So I'm going to give him a pass on that, but – I think, John, I think it's about time we start questioning some more decisions Chauncey Billis makes going forward. Yeah, and I think here's another thing. Like, okay, there's a silver lining if they just go into a tailspin in this road trip and they suddenly become a team that, you know, urgently has to make a move. Because I think for a lot of time, a lot of years and a lot of times here watching the Blazers, they've kind of skated along and just been okay. You said it's more of the same, Stephen. It's like you're watching the same old it's Groundhog Day. Um, you know, it – it's evident that this roster's got some holes in it, and I hear people talking about the need for a backup center, I, uh, a two-way player you know, who can play the wing, and I just wonder if maybe the silver lining of them struggling a little bit will be Joe Cronin going, hey, we got to do something, or this season could get out of hand in a hurry. Yeah, and I think Joe Cronin has been sort of on that before the season even started. When they were 10 and 4 and, you know, fans everywhere including myself were so hyped and we're watching them play defense and you know defense doesn't slump like shooting. Uh. But uh, you know, Joe Cronin even then knew, look, this roster, it's maybe not as bad as people said it was and it's not as good as people think it is now. I I think he's going to be very very active at the deadline. Now, does he have assets to make a you know a big move, a home run move, or even an extra base hit? Well, that's a question. I'm expecting more. Maybe uh, you know you move someone out like a Josh Hart or a Yusuf Nurkic if you have a taker for Nurkic, and you're getting two solid, solid bench pieces because I mean the starting lineup they're definitely generating points. They've played defense at times, but I mean the bench is so decimated. When they're healthy, they're Okay, they're not even great then. You need some more of those reliable guys that can just plug and play for 18 to 20 minutes a game, and they're missing that. Coming up, I want to talk about the cost of attending live sports events. I think it's out of hand. I'm worried about families. 
I uh, did some research on the topic today, and it's not just big sporting events I'm talking about. It's the regular old college football games. It's NBA games. It's Major League Baseball games. Things are out of hand. We'll talk about it. Plus, Punch It Audio coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote today at johnconzano.com about the cost of the rising cost of sporting events, live sporting events. Uh, the college football playoff title game between Georgia and TCU set for next Monday at SoFi Stadium. Uh, you may have heard that organizers announced this week that they will not allow tailgating in the stadium parking lot. The uh, SoFi Stadium is blaming the college football playoff. College football playoffs blaming SoFi Stadium, but the rule is no tailgating um, and the takeaway is that, you know, of course, they want you to go into the stadium. They want you to buy the $12 hot dogs and the $17 beers at SoFi Stadium. By the way, for a regular season Rams or Chargers game, they get a measly $8 for a hot dog. But the college football playoff at SoFi Stadium, the hot dogs will be $12. So you're paying a tax to see a big-time sporting event. One game left in the college football season. They would like you to bring your credit card. They want every last dollar. I went looking for some research, though, in general about the cost of attending games, and I found the Fan Cost Index. You may be familiar with this. A Chicago-based firm has put this, uh, this formula out for the last 30 years. They uh, include four average-price game tickets, two small beers, four soft drinks, four regular-sized hot dogs, parking, two game programs, and they add in to the two least expensive adult size adjustable caps at the souvenir store. And they give you an index of what it costs your family of four to go to a game. For example, family of four, the cost to attend a Las Vegas Raiders game this season is the highest in the NFL, $738 for a family of four under that formula. The Rams were only $608. Now, I looked at Monday's college football national championship game. And I use the same criteria because they don't break that ga game down for the fan cost index. But I did it. I took uh, average price game tickets, two small beers, four soft drinks, four hot dogs, parking, two game programs, and estimated the uh, cost of two adult size adjustable caps. And I came up with $2,308. That does not include your airfare. That does not include your hotel. That does not include uh, if you if you eat at Starbucks or you get a coffee. It, that's what that's at the game. Twenty three hundred and eight dollars for a family of four. Average NFL game five hundred ninety dollars. Average hockey game in the NHL four hundred sixty two dollars. NBA game four hundred forty four dollars. Major League Baseball two hundred fifty six. So that's better. But you know, I grew up as a kid in the Bay Area. Like we didn't go to a lot of games. I went to a, a few San Francisco Giants games every season. I, I attended a, a couple of few Warriors games in my childhood. We got One time we got tickets to the 49ers game in the early 80s. That, that was a tough ticket once they got good. And, but we had season tickets to San Jose State football for a few years in the late 70s and early 80s. And I remember those tickets being like 8 or $10. And I remember my dad, because I always wanted a game program. I was that kid. I always wanted a game program. And my dad, at every game, he would buy me a game program. It was like 5 bucks. I realize now what a big expenditure that was because the tickets themselves were 8 or $10. The game was a treat. 
had a tremendous impact on me. Obviously, I'm talking about it all these years later. It's some of the best memories of my childhood, throwing the Nerf football in the parking lot, tailgating, going inside, Crazy George, uh, watching great players like Steve Clarkson at quarterback and Gerald Wilhite in the backfield and Gil Bird, Jarris Bird's dad, was a defensive back for the for the San Jose State team. And Jack Elway, John Elway's dad, was the coach, the head coach at the time. And it was, it was good times, right? But now I'm watching college football uh, and professional sports escalating their prices to the point where I'm looking around going, how many families can even go to these games? How many families have already thrown in the keys and said, hey, it's just not – you know, it's not in the budget unless we get free tickets. And and I'm kind of looking at college sports because college sports used to be the place. It was the place my parents went when they were looking for affordable, family-friendly entertainment. When we were a family of six, my dad was not buying six tickets to go see the Warriors. When I went to see the Warriors with Dad, it was my dad and me. That was it. We went. When I went to see the 49er game, it was my dad and I. Like, we very rarely did, like, everybody pile into the car, let's go to the pro game. No, we did That was reserved for, like, small college San Jose State football um, or maybe the East-West Shrine game if somebody got free tickets. But I'm looking now at college sports and the rising cost of tickets and parking and it, concessions when you get inside and a program, and I'm going, you know what? I had a few ADs tell me, like in the last two years, that they were really concerned that the change of the NIL rules would cause some of their existing sponsors to turn and go, you know what, we're not going to do a sponsorship this year. We're going to uh, get athlete endorsements instead. Like nobody would say that on the record, but they've talked to me about that privately and said, hey, we're, we're a little bit concerned that this is going to cannibalize our revenue when some of these sponsors start paying players with NIL deals. So they were really nervous about that, and everybody's chasing new revenue. And if they're chasing new revenue and they're losing revenue on the sponsorship side, they have very few places they can go to make up that gap, that shortfall. They can go and turn to their campus president and go, hey, uh, we, need, uh, we need a subsidization. They can turn to the conference and say we need more money. Uh, but the easier thing for them to do is to raise ticket prices, raise parking, raise a donation, and gouge you a little bit at the stadium like the pro teams do. Now, the fact that there's no tailgating in the SoFi Stadium parking lot before Monday's championship game is disappointing. I guess if you want to bring food, you're going to have to eat it in your car or smuggle it into the stadium like you know we used to do when we were kids. But it just really kind of chaps me when I look at the cost of attending the game. Tune in next Monday night, and when they do that wide shot, that glamour shot that John Strong talked about yesterday, and they show the full stadium, SoFi Stadium, I want you to remember that every family of four that's inside that stadium dropped about $2,308 just to be there. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the people sitting in the lower level. The lower level tickets, the minimum lower level ticket is $1,500. Like, if, and the cheapest ticket in the house is $400. So, and that's the upper deck end zone. So, you're really looking at every body that you see in there spending an average of about $700 just to be there. That's not even before they bought a $12 hot dog. It's really disappointing to me. Guys, uh, how has that changed your habit as a sports fan? Do you, are you more or less inclined to take the family to a game? Definitely. And, uh, you know... I, 
with my son being eight years old, really getting into the Blazers now, like he wants to go to more and more games. And we've been to a couple, and we kind of have to tell him before the game, like, hey, you know, we'll get you a, a, one snack, and that's about it. Like we're going to eat before we go to the game. Um, you know, and it's not that we're you know in trouble for money, but it just it piles up, right? Like just the cost of everything piles up, and so you kind of have to pick and choose what games you go to. And you know, we've only received free tickets basically for the games we've gone to. So. It is one of those things where it's a little outrageous, I think, and it is. I, it's not that it's going to hurt like viewership because people are going to stay at home and watch the games no matter what. But I do worry for like my sons that like really want to get into sports. Like it's going to be hard for them to see live sporting events going forward, just with the prices being so outrageous as they are. Yeah, I'm in the exact same situation. Free tickets, and I can take my kiddo. It's just it's not necessarily in the budget. We've gone to a few Blazer games. He loves it. But a big part of that, too, is it's right here downtown. So, I mean, we can just park you know, here by work and just take the, the max in. It's no big deal. We don't have to deal with that, don't have to pay for it. But, I mean, I'm looking at some of these prices. I mean, I'm never going to be able to take him to, like, a Seahawks game, or I don't even know necessarily about you know going to a a, a ducks or a, a beavers game and it's only going to get worse and that's the thing is it's going to mute his interest in sports he's really interested especially in baseball but some of these other sports you know how do you get kids fired up and falling in love with the sports well you you take them to feel that atmosphere in person you know hey that's damian lillard right there you're in the same building as him and when you can't do that i mean it, it affects a whole generation of kids that just can't get in the building yeah because what yeah, you said john yeah. going back to it like when i was a kid i remember going to sporting events when I was little and it was like the biggest deal ever right like I remember going to Mariners games when they played the Red Sox and I played uh, my baseball team was the Red Sox so it was like oh yeah this is awesome like I get to watch Javier Valentin hit some home runs yep. or, John, yep. or Mo Vaughn you know that was one of my favorite players like to watch him and same with basketball like I love the Houston Rockets I left Hakeem I remember in second grade I got to go to a Rockets game versus uh, the Blazers when Vernon Maxwell went into the crowd and fought people I was at that game in second grade, and I always remember that. Like, I always remember that game. The Blazers crushed the Rockets. I was sad, but it was so excited to see Hakeem in person. And you just you want your kids to have that as well. But with the prices being up, man, it's, it's just so much harder now. I think they're making it really hard on families. And, look, uh, you know, I was having this discussion off air with a friend yesterday, and um, we were talking about the Blazers and how there just seems to be less interest in general from the mainstream – sports fan in the Portland market for the Blazers and he asked me what I thought it was about and of course I think some of it is there's kind of an exhaustion with them kind of spinning their wheels and Groundhog Day and all that uh, and maybe the death of Paul Allen and kind of the franchise feeling a little rudderless adds into that but I think a big factor in it and you guys could probably speak to this is the fact that you know like what was it 12 or 13 years ago the Blazers made that move to Comcast Sportsnet Northwest and we all may remember that not everybody could get them. And I, I wondered at the time, would a decade or 12 or 13 or 14 years of young fans not being able to watch the team on a regular basis impact how enthusiastic they were about the team? I think it has played a role. I think it has played like a secondary role in the fact that there seems to be less interest in that Blazers team. Now, I think we're now in an era where they're more accessible and maybe that, that some of that comes back, but I think they're paying a tax for that. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. It's it's a multi-pronged reason. They haven't had sustained, you know, real elite success. Uh, I think you've got a lot fewer homegrown 
Portlanders here, a lot of transplants, which is great, but that's going to affect that diehard feeling. But a big part of it is if you're not watching the team, you're not a massive fan of the team. That's it. Yeah, the funny part is when I worked for the Blazers, I couldn't even watch the Blazers on my TV package. Like, <laughs> I worked for the Blazers, I couldn't even watch them. But, like, you know, I, I, I watch their games when I'm scouting them and I'm dissecting the plays, but I couldn't watch them live. So, like, yeah, it is. It's crazy that like we're in 2023 and not everyone in the area can watch your the one prof- your major professional team in the NBA. You can't watch. It's just wild. Yeah, and I think uh, that has an impact over time. Our big splash is coming up. We'll play punch it audio. Uh, coming up top of the hour at four o'clock, we'll visit with Greg Biggins, 24/7 Sports. Uh, we'll talk about DJ Uyunglele, the new quarterback at Oregon State. We will talk about the recruiting hall, like in the wake of all that signing day stuff. Well, how did Oregon and Oregon State really come away from it? How about Washington State, Washington, and some others? We'll talk about it. Uh, And then uh, at 4.30, Connor Letourneau of the San Francisco Chronicle will be joining us. He wrote a great piece about Draymond Green yesterday. Fantastic piece about sort of Green trying to reinvent himself yet again in the NBA. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote about the rising cost of attending sporting events today, and I'm just I was just scanning through the comment section. Uh, during the commercial break, and fantastic comments. And I think it's one of the bright spots of uh, me going rogue, going on my own, launching johnconzano.com in March, uh, is that the uh, comment section is its not a total cesspool. It's not. It's thoughtful. It's engaging. Uh, peep, some people, Most people are using their real names. Uh, it's really it's really kind of a different experience from what I'm used to. So I spend some time in there. Check it out uh, if you are interested in mixing it up and sharing your thoughts as well. Uh, grab a free subscription. Grab a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. I always say that. Um, let's go to the big splash. It's the one thing you want to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. So many big stories today. I can't pick among them, but I'm going to go with uh, DeMar Hamlin waking up. I mean, how can you not use that as the biggest splash? He went into cardiac arrest on Monday, collapsed, uh, and uh, now DeMar Hamlin uh, apparently alert, awake, not speaking yet, communicating with his doctors by writing on a notepad. This is good news. I'm applauding it. I think a lot of you are applauding it as well. Wish him the best, obviously. Um, positive words of encouragement heading uh, his way and uh, to anybody else out there who might be struggling and have somebody uh, who is in the intensive care unit. But uh, this was a this was good news today as you uh, we got our, some encouraging news from the DeMar Hamlin front. Uh, secondarily, didn't make the big splash, but close. But how about Texas firing Chris Beard? amid a domestic uh, violence charge that is pending. He got fired less than a month after the school suspended him without pay. He got arrested on a family violence charge, domestic family violence charge in Texas. Um, He was arrested on December 12th. His fiancée told officers that he choked her, bit her, hit her when they got into an argument. Um, Now, she's... uh, 
She's now released a statement saying she uh, did not tell police that Beard choked her. Uh, that's her updated statement. But uh, Texas firing Chris Beard amid this charge, I think it's uh, the right thing to do if they've done the diligence and they're not comfortable having him as their head coach, then uh, it's well within their, uh, their rights to do that. Um, further, I'm uh, looking at another story that has to do with domestic violence. Uh, we had talked a little bit about Dana White. Um, Dana White had this power slap league. Not making You can't make this up. He had, the power slap league was due to debut on TBS on January the 11th. And uh, there were a whole bunch of people that were uh, interested in seeing grown-ups stand across from each other and slap each other. Um, but Dana White was filmed by uh, a video that was released by TMZ in an altercation with his wife on New Year's Eve in which he slaps his wife, she slaps him, he slaps her uh, a couple of times. Um, TBS has pulled this. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it says that they pulled it, and then TBS then came out and said, they're going to push it back a week. Like, so what is going on? Did they pull this or did they push it back a week? Um, you know, Andrew Marchand, uh, the New York Post reporter, saying that the debut is going to be delayed, not canceled. A.J. Perez says that, uh, you know, A.J. Perez, who I know very well, says that, uh, you know, that, that it's been removed from the schedule. Um, it seems like you either are airing this or not. Why delay it a week, guys? What's the, what's the gain here? Well, I was going to ask you, like, that doesn't make any sense to just delay it a week. Like, are we just, are they just playing it and say, like, we're going to hopefully forget what we saw on New Year's Eve? Or, like, that's the play? Like, just wait a little bit longer. We'll all forget that Dana White slapped his wife. I don't know. Like, I have no idea, like, what the play would be to delay it a week. Like you said, either you have it or you don't. I, it doesn't make sense. Supposed to debut on the 11th of January. TBS says that's not going to happen. Everyone went, oh, that makes sense. He slapped his wife. You can't air this thing. The power slap league, it's just it's, it's just too bad. You can't make this up. And then uh, Andrew Marchand of the New York Post coming back saying um, TBS has since announced that they will air it, but they've just delayed it to January 18th in light of White's recent actions. I think they're just buying themselves some time. To find out if there's going to be charges, to find out if uh, you know how how bad is this before we we got a lot invested in this. We've already produced this. We've already created this reality television show uh, around people slapping each other. Um, you know, so we got to wait and see. But um, is it, apparently, is, is it kind of yeah. like the Chris Beard situation? How they just kind of bought time? I think a lot of entities him? do yeah. this. I I don't have I I have less respect for that than you know. Obviously, I think. I think you have to know as an entity what you stand for. You have to know who you are. You have to know where your boundaries are. You should know that before any of these incidents happen. Like, you know, we should all, like, one time, I'll tell a story on this show. We had we had somebody who had applied for a job who was pretty talented, wanted to be part of the staff, had great talent, really good guy, interviewed really well, um, brought him in for a couple weeks, had him around the staff. I really liked who he was in that setting. And in the 11th hour before we offered him a job as part of the staff, I ran a background check on him. And I got in the habit of doing that just because in our 
jobs as journalists working at newspapers and, and radio stations. We, we do this when we do stories on people. And, you know, just want to make sure that there's nothing here I don't know. And it came back that he had a domestic violence conviction. And I called him in and I said, hey, I'm sorry, I can't hire you. We can't have you on the show. I can't have you on air. I can't have you in the background. I can't have you as a supporting member of the staff. I can't have you as a researcher. I, you know, apologies, but I just can't have somebody who's got a conviction for domestic violence on the staff. And I knew that because I, that's something that, you know, that's something that was part of sort of the ethics of the show before we even, you know, before he even applied for the job. So he was really disappointed, and he was saying, well, here's what happened. And I said, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter. And it may not seem fair, but there are a lot of places you could go work, but you can't be on this show because, in part because, you know, I don't want that to be part of what we are. And also because I can't comment on stories like Dana White and slapping his wife and then having this power slap show and I can't with good faith comment on this stuff knowing that like we've got somebody in the other room who you know has has done this thing and has a conviction on it like it would be one thing if there was just an accusation like maybe we just wait it out see what happened but you know he had a he had a conviction for domestic violence I was like we can't I'm sorry you know I hope everything's going well but we can't have you here and he understood I mean I think you know I told him in a way that you know I it's you know, I'm not mad at him. I hope you know. You know, I we all believe in redemption and forgiveness, but just couldn't have him here. And it it was painful in some ways because I wanted to give the guy a shot, but it, it's there are just some convictions that I can't. Uh, you know, when it comes to child abuse, when it comes to domestic violence, when it comes to violent violent offenses, we just can't can't do that. Can't have that. And uh, I know that's, you know, some people are going to go, hey, well, what about second chances and everything? You know, that's fine. But it's, it's, I think it's inherently hypocritical to have a radio show in which we would be criticizing Dana White for slapping his wife while we'd have somebody answering the phones who slapped their wife, you know, uh, allegedly. So there you go. That's where we stand. Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports is coming up. I'm going to ask him about DJ Uyungalele, the new transfer quarterback at Oregon State. I'll ask him about some of the incoming uh recruits at Oregon, and the rest of the Pac-12 coming up. B-F-F-T. From the Pac-West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Our next guest uh, is fantastic at his job. He really is. Greg Biggins, national recruiting analyst, 24-7 sports. He's a fantastic follow on social media. He's a great read. He knows what the hell's going on. That's why we bring him on this show. I got to ask him. Uh, I want to ask him about some of the recruiting, that trends that he's seen in the Pac-12. I want to ask him about uh, DJ Uyungalele, the transfer quarterback moving from Clemson to Oregon State. I know Biggins was all over kind of the initial recruitment to Clemson. Want to know what he thinks is happening there, what kind of quarterback Oregon State might be getting. Plus, Biggins has been out at these national events where all the big-time four- and five-star recruits are playing and showcasing themselves, and he's joining us now live via satellite, Greg Biggins. Where are you today, Greg Biggins? I'm leaving 
my little local 24-hour fitness, which actually is only open from like 8 to 10, so I'm not sure why they still call it 24-hour, but yeah, I got in late from Orlando, so I'm trying to get out some of, you know, sweat out some of the, some of the elements of a, of a week in Orlando, Florida, so I'm feeling kind of good right now. I like that you got into the gym. That's a win, man. Take it. I got to. I, I'm taking it. Yep. So 30, 30 minutes in there, and I know I had to talk to you, so I didn't want to be like huffing and puffing. I still probably kind of am, but uh, what, what, what can you do, John? I don't mind, man. If you want to jump on the treadmill while we do this interview, I don't mind. Uh, and it, it adds some flavor to it. Uh, Biggins, let me ask you, what's going on in Orlando? Tell us about the event there and what you're really looking for when you go down to those events. It was cool. No, it was good. You know, for me being a West Coast guy, it's, it's a it's a fun opportunity to see players from outside my region. Obviously, you're, you're watching my film and you know you're you're seeing these guys at other events, whether it be Elite Eleven, which is all quarterbacks, or Future Fifty, uh, which is all positions, but. You know, it, it, it kind of just, you know, in my head, I've always kind of said, you know, West Coast, yeah, we have good skill players, good quarterbacks. But man, the kids in the South have just kind of built differently in the trenches. And, you, and then you go out there, and it, it kind of just, you know, solidifies that thought. I mean, some of the guys in the in the trenches, big offensive linemen, big D tackles, man, they're just different out there. Man, they're just so big and physical. And um, so uh, that was cool to see some of those guys. You know, obviously, Oklahoma, Jackson Arnold. Um, he was my probably my top offensive player. It's the year of the quarterback. We have five quarterbacks ranked in our top 15 overall, and I think all five have a legitimate claim to say, hey, I'm the number one guy. But, uh, you know, after watching Jackson Arnold, uh, again, I mentioned it, you know, Oklahoma signee, man, the, the kid is, is really special. It's hard for me to imagine him not being really, really good for two to three years, and then he's out, out to the NFL. Um, so some good quarterback play. Uh, also saw Jaden Rashada. Uh, NorCal Pittsburgh kid going to University of Florida, so it was good to see him in person. Haven't hadn't seen him much this past season. So, um, but yeah, but the big takeaways were you know the South is loaded with linemen. Um, the West Coast, Zach Branch was the most explosive kid there going to USC. He actually might run track this spring, which is kind of fun. Uh, you know, this would be like his you know high school senior year, but because he's an early grad and, and track season is obviously in the spring, he might try to try to piggyback that and. You know, I think he could do it. You know, he was a 10-3, 100-meter guy as a sophomore. Didn't run this past spring because he was focusing on football. But, I mean, this is a guy who, before he's done, he'll he'll run a sub-10 at, at college at some point. So it'd be kind of fun to see him go to USC and, and run track this spring and, and then just kind of see what kind of numbers he could put up over the next couple of seasons. But, man, this, this kid's dynamic and uh, a really fun kid to watch. So those are just some of the quick takeaways for me. Give me an idea because, you know, when you go to these events um... – you know, is it easier for you to evaluate a quarterback, a, a skill position player, a lineman? Because I don't know, how hard are they playing? How hard are they going? Compare it like in the NFL we see the Pro Bowl. I don't think it's that. But, you know, obviously these some of these guys don't want to get hurt. Is there is there a little bit of let up in these games, or are they playing really hard? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say not only is there a lot of let up, but, you know, the game is almost secondary. You, you probably, it's mm. probably, a not even probably, it, it's, so much better to evaluate from the practices than the actual game itself. You know, practices, and what I'm noticing, not to go off in a little, little segue, but I'm noticing a trend the last couple of years that a lot of guys are opting out of playing in these big games. Um, they don't really care about their ranking at this point, and they've already got their college picked out. So uh, I, I think a lot of it, you know, just colleges are kind of kind of say, hey, take it easy. We don't want you to get hurt. You're going to be enrolling in a week. A lot, so for all the guys who sign and, and are going to be enrolling, that, that's like now. So the next two weeks is when you see a lot of the early enrollees. So colleges don't really want them to do too much. And, and honestly, this is just me just throwing this out. I, I think NIL has a lot to do with it, where 
some of these guys with the, with the big name reputations, if they have these big NIL deals, man, they're probably told, hey, you don't go out there and work out. We don't want you to hurt your stock. You know, a bad performance might suddenly you might you might lose some buzz. So um, I would say last year, but especially this year for both games, I was in Orlando. Um, this weekend is the All American Bowl in, in San Antonio, Texas, but. You're seeing a ton of guys just not opting to play. And um, I don't even know your question now. Oh, evaluation. Yeah. yeah. When, um, when you look at players, give me, a, give me an idea, Biggins. Is it, yeah. you know, when you're evaluating a guy, you know, sometimes I hear scouts, they'll say, you know, it's easier just to look at a quarterback. You can watch him in practice and you can tell he's got the skills, right? But is yeah. it harder at certain positions to evaluate? Do you need to see more or is it trickier because – you know, a stud lineman, uh, you know, who's dominating everyone, you go, oh, you know, I don't know what he would do against other studs that are, you know, highly yeah. recruited players. No, easy. That's easy. No, so the, the, the biggest thing, as, as not that I'm, you know, Joe Scout, but the biggest thing is you, you, you're evaluating off of tools, not as, as a performance. Now, production matters, so don't take away me saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. Production definitely matters, but you're, you're looking at high-end tools because, you know, rankings are all a projection. Right? You know, for us, it's an NFL draft. We're trying to project three to four years. So, for example, Kayvon Thibodeau, he came out to Under Armour, didn't work out one day. The next day he kind of half-efforted it, didn't do great, you know, just because he just wasn't really feeling it. And if someone were to say, oh, you know, based on these practices, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, he's just okay. But, again, you're, you're ranking a kid like, like Kayvon on his length, his get-off, his burst, his natural pass rush skill, and all that other stuff can be taught in terms of technique. The, the worst thing you hear people say, oh, I don't like his technique. No one cares about technique in high school because you're going to get taught that. Even if you have great technique, I'm doing air quotes, a really good college receiver coach, O-line coach, linebacker coach, whatever, they're going to tear apart your high school technique anyway and kind of rebuild you the way they want to see you. So uh, quarterback-wise, again, you're looking for me. I'm looking at, you know, feet, arm strength, accuracy, um, if a guy, Jackson Arnold, would have went one for ten, it wouldn't have mattered for me. Because in practices, I saw a guy with size, feet, athleticism, arm talent. He's smart. Uh, he's a leader, and he's tough. That carries more weight than anything else. Offensive line, D-line, one-on-ones. You know, you, you see, again, for me, I'm looking at get-off, length. Um, you know, some of these edge defensive ends were just freaky in terms of their get-off. Um, they're 6'5", they're 230, they're going to be 270. So you're looking at a guy's frame. How much weight can you put on him without him losing any of that natural twitch? That's more important than a guy who would go out and dominate, but he's already maxed out. I don't want to give a name because I don't want to feel like I'm putting the kid down. One of the best receivers out there is a kind of mid to high level three-star kid, um, probably the best route runner in the camp, but he's 5'9", and he's not super quick or athletic. He's very productive in high school, and he had a great week of practice. He was in our top performers list all the time, and people are saying, oh, is he going to be a four-star now? And you're saying – Probably not because his, uh, he's already hit his ceiling. He's already peaked, really. He's not going to get any bigger. He'll get a little bit faster, but he's not a naturally twitchy kid. So what you see right now is, is what you get, whereas this kid, maybe from Florida, maybe from Georgia, he's not as well coached, but he's 6'1", 6'2". He does catch the ball, has no clue how to run a route, but he's a quick, twitchy, lengthy kid with upside off the charts. Once that guy gets taught how to run a route, you know, how to settle, how to do this, this, and that, that guy has a higher ceiling, so therefore that guy will have a higher rating. That doesn't always work out that way. Some guys, sometimes the kid who's a better football player will be a better college player as well. Um, but, again, when you're evaluating at a camp like this, it's not so much their production. It's more like their, their long-term projection, if that makes any sense. 
total sense. Craig Biggins, uh, workout freak and recruiting an- analyst nationally for 24-7 sports is with us. Uh, Oregon signed uh, a four-star quarterback, Austin Novosad. What do you know about Novosad? I like him. Saw him uh, four days at the Elite 11 uh, over the summer, and you know, one of my top guys for the first couple workouts out there. I heard he's already doing really well in San Antonio. So, I mean, he's he's a great um, a, a great late pickup, and that kind of shows the power of, of Oregon football to lose a kid like Dante Moore. And I'm not going to sit here like I've seen some Oregon fans say, "Oh, he's better than Dante Moore." You know, he's the one that we wanted. Yeah. I mean, let's just let's you know be realistic, right? Dante Moore is, is a special special talent who could be the number one player overall. Um, you don't need to like tear one down to raise up another. Um, but for Oregon to rally and to rebound that quickly and get a guy like Novosad, who's a national kid, a uh, top 10 to 15 quarterback, to be able to do that and flip a guy that late from a program, Baylor, who's really, really good in football, right, with a young staff, that, that shows the power of Oregon. So, no, I, I like him. He can move around a little bit. He's probably a, a plus athlete. He throws the ball well. He's got all the tools that you want to see. He's smart. So, no, I, I like him a lot for Oregon. Give me an idea. You know, you've been around – uh, you know, both uh, Mateo and DJ Uyunglele. Uh, what kind of player is Mateo? Who's Oregon getting? Let's start with him. So they're, they're radically different in terms of their temperaments. And it's kind of funny. So you, if you ever talk to DJ, man, he's this really outgoing, gregarious. They're both phenomenal kids. I, someone who I, I have three daughters, you want your daughter to marry either one of those two guys. But, but then I'm just saying DJ is, you know, outgoing natural rah-rah leader. Mateo is really quiet, you know. He's, and that's kind of people have questioned, does he really like football? Because you'll see him, you know, he'll make a great play, and he's not a guy that's going to celebrate or taunt or do anything. And I think people have always said, man, I wish he had more of a killer instinct. Like, he'll have a chance to go for a kill shot, and, and instead of just burying the quarterback, he'll kind of like just like lay him down on the ground, right? Like, it's not like he's been told from a young age, hey, you know, play nice. But in terms of his athletics, athleticism, like, he's 6'5 and 260, and I've seen him at just some I mean, informal basketball workouts, just in-game windmill dunk on people. So, I mean, he's a high-level athlete. He's a, he's a top-five tight end prospect. If you were to recruit him as a tight end, he's going to come in as an edge rusher. So, I mean, he's got every – again, I mentioned earlier the, all those projectable tools. He's got every single one of them. He's long, long arms, long frame. Uh, he can put on weight. He's a natural athlete. If they can kind of instill him – and not, please don't think I'm calling him a soft player. He's not, he plays hard. He does. But if he can kind of instill maybe a little bit more of a main streak in him, then I think he's a he's a NFL first round pick in three years. Is it did it surprise you how well Oregon did? Because given their season, I think there were some concerns, and you know NIL may play a role here, Biggins. But Oregon came away looking pretty good on that early signing period. They did. You know, I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think they went from, like, outside the top 25 and vaulted all the way up into the top 10. Obviously, they lost Peyton Bowen. That was a big part of that top 10. But, no, they still closed really well. And, uh, you know, I think, yeah, you know, NIL, Oregon's going to play that game really well. Um, They have a a really good system in place, but they also have a a, a staff. And we've talked about this a 100 times. Dan Lanning and that staff, whether it be Coach Meek, you know, Tosh Lupoy, um, you know, I can go on and on and on. But they are really good at recruiting. They're aggressive. They are, um, I will use the word, maniacal and how hard they go after kids. They have a good, sound approach to it. They know what they're doing. They're strategic. Um, you know, Dalen Austin was a kid who they kind of got, that was a late flip, but I had heard, you know, for a while that they were kind of under the radar, kind of doing really good with Dalen. 
and we're able to, you know, flip him late. But, again, that, that had been in the works for a while. And that's kind of how this works. A lot of times part of being good at recruiting, you don't want to have everyone uh, seeing your, your cards, if you know what I'm saying. Like, you, you have to kind of be under the radar where the school that you're currently committed to, you don't want them to know that you're really actively recruiting player until the last minute. And I, so I think Oregon has a really good job of, of being both strategic, being aggressive, and they close. They have, they have coaches that close really, really well. DJ Uyengalele uh, leaves Clemson going to Oregon. I don't know how much you have tracked him in college, but uh, you know I'm I'm looking at Jonathan Smith going. This could be a huge win-win. He gets a he gets a talent that he hasn't had before as a head coach. DJ gets a chance to kind of reinvent himself in an offense that isn't going to require him to carry the whole offense. Uh, how do you see that marriage going down? You know, I, I'm rooting. I, I I can't even tell you how much I'm rooting for for both parties. I want Oregon. I want him to, to do so well. Again, I've been covering recruiting almost 30 years. DJ's probably one of the two or three best kids I've ever talked to, and that and that's legitimate. And then I've always been a big Jonathan Smith fan. And you know what? Yeah, it didn't go great at Clemson. I watched a few of the games, and I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh, that Clemson offense isn't very good," because like the two previous quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson. I mean, they, they did okay there, right? Like you, you can't sit here and say, "Oh, this offense is bad." And you know, I think Katie Plumnick's going to do great there. So I just, for whatever reason, just didn't click with DJ. And, you know, I think Oregon State, it, it fits them. They have a, the, the power, a little bit more of a power run game. I think DJ works well out of, out of play action. Uh, you know, I think the issue with DJ is confidence. And you talk to anybody in sport, you can't play, whether it be basketball, baseball, football, you cannot play without confidence. I think DJ kind of had his confidence shaken a little bit. I don't know if it ever recovered. I think that'll be, you know, job one for Jonathan is getting, you know, him to believe in himself again because I still believe that the kid has NFL tools. You know, he's got a generational arm. He's a big athlete. I don't want to see him having to run quarterback sneaks ten times a game. I hated that part of the Clemson offense for DJ. Um, but I think Jonathan can, can do some things with him. And in terms of just his ability to just a pure thrower, like you said, he's, he's a, the best pure thrower that Jonathan's ever had. But, again, being a great quarterback, man, like 85% of it is, is shoulders up, right? It's your head. It's being able to process and go from one to two to three reads and just kind of knowing what you're seeing and making adjustments and audibleizing and all that stuff. And DJ needs to work on that as well. But from a pure physical standpoint, he, he's super gifted. I'm curious what you think of the return of Bo Nix to Oregon and how that may have impacted Dante Moore. Did Nix come back after Oregon knew Moore was flipping? Or does Moore consider that Nix is going to be there next year? He's probably not going to play if he goes to Oregon and he decides to go to UCLA. I know, you know, I don't want you to speak for the kid, but how do you read that? No, I mean, I'll speak for the kid. You know, Dante's come out and said, you know, the, the biggest thing was, was, wasn't was so much Bo Nix, although for me, I, I do think that played a role. But he said Kenny Dillingham leaving and going over to ASU was, was the, the biggest part of that equation. So, um you know, do I think he wants to come in and play and compete right away? I do, and I think he sees that opportunity at UCLA better than Oregon because Bo Nix coming back, you know, he's a starter, no doubt about it, without, you know, assuming he stays healthy. So, uh, but Dante said, you know, this past week that, you know, it was, it was mostly Dillingham, and, and then he, he, he liked Chip Kelly, which I've said before, this is probably the biggest flip I've seen in the last 20 years because most flips, a, a guy will flip to a school that was in his, you know, top three or four before he committed. UCLA wasn't even in his – in Dante's recruitment at all. And all of a sudden, you know, they got involved, took a visit, and a week later he's committing. So that was kind of radical for me to see UCLA even involved. I usually don't go after the high-end guys. But, you know, Chip, his reputation, ironically, built while he was the head coach at Oregon, 
kind of paid off in getting Dante. So I would say it's twofold. It's Bo coming back, um, and just as importantly, if not more, it was Kenny going to ASU. All right, Biggins, you got to hydrate now. You've worked out. you got to hydrate, and you got to get sleep. Those are, those are the three biggest factors for your health. Agree, 100%. The sleep thing is rough for me, but I agree 100% on everything else. That's why I talk to you, John. You're, you're the guy. You, you, you coach me up. I'm, I'm listening to you, and uh, you know, I'm going to apply all that. I can be a different person by hey. tomorrow if I just do a couple of these things. I got three daughters, and I'll tell you, I probably got five hours of sleep last night. So that's that. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not practicing what I preach. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. So, no, always good talking to you, man. Have a, you have too. a great New Year. Thanks for having me as always, man. I'll, you, you, you guys be good. Happy New Year. Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports. Follow him on Twitter. He's really good. He's a good follow. He's, uh, you know, he and Brandon Hoffman are the go-tos on this show when I want to talk recruiting. Biggins does a great job, at Greg Biggins on Twitter. Leave it here. Coming up, we will play Punch It Audio. Connor Letourneau will be along to talk about the NBA, in particular his story on Draymond Green. A great story about sort of the the rebranding, the rebirth of Draymond yet again. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at 4.30, we'll be talking to Connor Letourneau of the San Francisco Chronicle. It'll be about 4.35 when he joins us to talk about Draymond Green and the piece that he wrote on sort of uh, the remaking of Draymond Green uh, yet again. What version is this? I don't know. But he punched his teammate in the preseason, and uh, here he is, uh, you know, trying to assert himself again. Uh, Connor Letourneau, uh, local native to the state of Oregon, will be joining us. 435 to talk about that. Let's play some punch and audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Really interesting story, one you don't see all the time. Texas A&M basketball team, they forgot their jerseys at the hotel. Had to start the game with a technical foul. Punch it. We are ready for Texas A&M and Florida as the Aggies make their SEC debut of the season. And Florida tries to snap a two-game losing streak, uh, but there's a fly in the open. Todd Golden told moments ago that the game will not start on time because Texas A&M's uniforms we're left at the team hotel. So, rush hour traffic being what it is in Gainesville, somebody's got to scoop back there, pick up the jerseys and shorts, and come back to Exact Tech. And until then, Todd Golden and his Gators will get some more shots up, and we will be delayed until we can get this game underway. And after a seven-plus minute delay, we are ready for some college basketball tonight. Texas A&M has uniforms and everything as they make their SEC opener tonight against uh, Florida Gators who look to snap a two-game losing streak. They were assessed a technical foul. Can you guys imagine the person who's scrambling around looking for the jerseys? Like, I knew I packed them. <laughs> Where were they? Yeah, no, when I played, uh, we had a guy forget his shoes one time at the hotel, and so they had to, like, drive back and get the ho get the shoes, but never the jerseys. That, that's a different situation. I, uh, I, I covered a college basketball game where a player pulled off his warm-up and he didn't have his jersey on. 
he mm. forgot because he warmed up usually without the jersey, just a T-shirt. He put his warm-up on, did not put his jersey on, and he's checking into the game like five minutes into the game. He rips off his jersey and the, or his warm-up and turns to his coach going, I got to go back to the locker room. So do uh, you think somebody's getting fired for this? I don't think so. But, you know, technical foul, 1-0 one, one Florida lead before tip-off. No, Is this a fireable offense? I don't think it's fireable. It's probably like a team manager, you know, like some volunteer. I can't imagine they get fired for that. They won the Warrior, game. Yeah, Warriors got stunned at the buzzer by the Pistons. Here's how it sounded. Punch it. Just guard the rim. Billy Hayes looking, looking, looking. That's a long five. The three. It's good. Sadiq Bay has won the game. Now they've got to go to replay. Ed Malloy called it good. And I think it was out of Sadiq Bay's hands. That was a long five seconds to inbound the ball. Well, they got it to Sadiq Bay. That's gone. That's in. The Pistons have stunned the Warriors. So Detroit ends the Warriors' perfect homestand with a shocker of their own. Sadiq Bay with a three at the buzzer to win it. Nobody talking about the late turnover from Jordan Poole that uh, played a factor in that. But uh, game winner there for the Pistons. Always exciting. Not everything can be perfect. By the way, uh, I guess the play was not designed for him. Did you guys know that? And he shot it anyway. I did not know that. He was supposed to set a screen, and instead he did not set the screen. He ran toward the ball, demanded it, and then took the shot. That's like uh, the Damian Lillard versus the Houston Rockets play. That play was not designed for him either. Do you think Sadiq Bey gets in trouble for not setting the screen if he doesn't make the shot? Yeah, Dwayne Casey just screaming at him. I wonder if part of it is because that really could have been a five-second violation. I, I don't. Did he run immediately to the ball, or was he kind of hanging around? And he's just like, dude, we got to uh, do something. I didn't see the replay. I read it, but I read the report because Dwayne Casey said he drew up the play. Supposed to be a corner three for someone else. Mm. Bay was supposed to set a screen. He never. No, he never set the screen. Instead, he just he ran toward the ball, demanded it. Uh, the inbounder was Killian Hayes. He he was said he was later said he was confused because that's not how the play was supposed to go in his head uh, when it came out of the timeout. But uh, Bay caught the ball, contorted his body, and let it fly. And uh, circus shot. <laughs> there you go. Josh Allen. Josh Allen, Bills quarterback, says he wants to make sure that T. Higgins of the Bengals knows that he didn't do anything wrong. We're talking about Demar Hamlin. And, you know, Higgins was the player that Hamlin was tackling. Here's Josh Allen. Punch it. I also I, I do want to say one more thing. Um, and I, I do. I haven't reached out to, to T. I, I saw some stuff on Twitter, and um, people should not be attacking him whatsoever. And I'm glad that Demar's family came out and said that. And I hopefully he found some some relief today because again, that's that's a football play. Um, and I hope that he doesn't hold that upon himself because. And there's nothing else that he could have done in that situation. So I uh, just wanted to say that, too. I'm learning a lot about some of these players and how they care about each other. I'm glad that Josh Allen is talking that way. But, you know, if you're just tuning in, if you don't know what happened, DeMar Hamlin uh, woke up today. And, you know, he's not yet talking, but he's communicating with medical staff and doctors by writing on a notepad and appears to have his cognitive function 
that you know it appears the that he you know there's no neurological damage which is just a huge relief um and now i think the football community is still putting its arm around each other and there was nothing t higgins did wrong i looked at the play you know he caught a pass he's running with the pass got tackled um you know he just turned and got tackled and so it wasn't vicious it, he he wasn't trying to punish anybody on the end of the tackle it would just it was an unfortunate freak thing and and i think later when we have medical experts come out and say here's exactly what happened and here's how unusual it was i think it's going to turn out that that the electrical signal in in the heart of demar hamlin was probably just interrupted by that blow to his upper chest at the wrong time and you know but still i think there's a lesson in there for all of us about you know cardiac events the importance of AED devices at, especially in, you know, non-NFL stadiums, high school stadiums, high school basketball gymnasiums, because, you know, those are the cases where, you know, DeMar Hamlin collapses on the field in Cincinnati. He's got great medical personnel as part of the training staff with his own team, the opposing team. They have a paramedic on site. They have an ambulance on site. They have a, you know, a trauma level hospital that is, you know, University of Cincinnati nearby, like really fortunate to be, I think, in that position. Not everybody's that lucky. And they're, you know, the David Heller Foundation has put more than 300 AED devices inside of high school gymnasiums and in high school campuses. You want to look for a, re- a way to help support david heller foundation they're putting those devices in local high schools and they're screening kids so that they're detecting heart issues in young athletes that would have gone undetected that's another way we can all get involved and we can all help out david heller foundation leave it here Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest is one of my favorite colleagues of all time. Worked with him uh, back in the old days, the local newspaper. He's doing a terrific job now at the San Francisco Chronicle as the Senior NBA writer, sports enterprise writer, native of the state of Oregon. I almost said Oregon. Uh, native of the state of Oregon. Connor Letourneau joining us now. How are you, man? What's what's new? Thanks for having me. That was quite the intro. I really appreciate it. You're one of my favorite colleagues of all time, too. Where do I rank? I want a ranking. I want to know like where I am. I want you to work on that after we get off air and tell me if I'm my top five, my top ten. You're definitely you know, top, top five for sure. I'd have to really break it down, but <laughs> hey, give us an idea. By the way, last night, uh, Warriors lose a tough one to the uh, to the Pistons at the buzzer. Are you covering every game, or are you just kind of going when you can, or how often are you getting to to the arena? Uh, to be honest, I'm not going to a lot of games these days. Like during the during the regular season, I pretty much go to practices and shoot arounds, and I, I don't really cover a lot of games. I'm doing a lot of non-Warriors Enterprise, and yeah. the stuff I'm writing about the Warriors is more enterprisey. 
Yeah. But come playoff time, I'll be on the road with them. I'll be around them every day. Um, I'm just trying to juggle a lot of hats right now. That's a that's a better lifestyle too because uh, that is a grind, and I don't think people understand. I think, you know, with Major League Baseball, the the beat reporters go and spend three or four or five days sometimes in a city. In, in the NBA, when you were on the beat, you were like on the fly. Like, give us an idea of what your Marriott points or what your frequent flyer miles were like. I was averaging about 125 nights a year in a Marriott. Um, I'm, I have lifetime ambassador elite status at Marriott. Um, I have a companion pass on Southwest Airlines. Um, you know, those were definitely some big perks. But to be completely honest, I'm not too upset. I'm not living that travel life anymore. I think the fiance is pretty happy about it, too. Amen to that. You had a piece on Draymond Green. That's why I really reached out to you and said, hey, i got to get you on. But, you know, Less than three months ago, he punches a teammate, Jordan Poole. Um, you know, what prompted you to write this story, and what did you learn about Draymond as you reported it? Yeah, so when that happened a few months ago, I was definitely one of the people who was writing the most about the fallout. I felt like every day for a few weeks I was writing about all the different ramifications, all of the different angles of that story because it, it felt so important because it was so important. Um, you know, I was looking at what it could mean for his future with the team. I was looking at what it meant for Jordan Poole, how, how the team was handling it in different ways. And as the season has unfolded, I wanted to wait for enough time to pass for us to have a large enough sample size. But I think it's fair to say now that he has done, Draymond Green has done a really good job of kind of reclaiming his, his status as a locker room leader, which, admittedly is not something I thought was possible a few months ago. And as I wrote in that story, um, I think it's the biggest form of redemption he's ever had in his career. He's had to bounce back from a lot of different things, both self-imposed and otherwise throughout his career. And the fact that he is playing the way he's playing this season on both ends, and he seems to genuinely be regaining the trust of his teammates in the front office, and he doesn't look like he's going to be traded this offseason, is one of the most mind-boggling feats I've ever seen in my career because it was bad a few, a few months ago. Does it say more about Draymond Green, or is it Warriors culture? Is it Steve Kerr? Is it an amalgam of those things? Yeah, I think it's all those things. I mean, for for it to be trending the way it is trending with Draymond. It's not just Draymond doing the right things, but it's the right things being done behind the scenes, you know, the right conversations being had, the right tone being set with uh, the leadership in place. And I think, I think that even though I had some issues with them not actually suspending Draymond at the time, I do think in a lot of ways they have handled it the right way. And, uh, you know, Draymond is a guy who is very used to adversity in his life and in his career. And so even though this was incredibly embarrassing for him and his family uh, for that video to be leaked, he did say several times afterward, I'm going to come back from this, I'm going to come back from this. And at that time, I mean, admittedly, I was doing a little bit of an eye roll, like, okay, man, I'm not sure this is something you can really come back from, but he's starting to prove me wrong. And, uh, you know, you got to give him credit for that. The, the video was leaked to TMZ. 
did did they ever find out who leaked it? Do you have a theory on that? My understanding is that they have not uh, found out who leaked it. I know they launched an investigation. I don't think it yielded any real results. They wouldn't release those results even if they did find something. But just talking to people, I haven't heard that they learned anything. The, the you know it, I just don't I don't think this happens on a lot of teams in any maybe with a lot of other personalities and you know where you're able to kind of put it back together again and I know that you know Zach Randolph punched Ruben Patterson at a practice but they were never really the same again and that franchise that Blazers franchise wasn't contending for championships amid all that and it's remarkable to see this in a locker room or on a team that it that is heralded for its culture and its chemistry and yet you know here they are kind of you know fighting their way back up the standings uh you know the role that Draymond's playing now um is he a guy that you see with this organization next season and beyond or does he opt out and take off at this point I I do see him with the team beyond this season um it just feels like the good vibes are flowing. You know, the, the Warriors very much understand how important he is. This is a team that has had a very up-and-down season, but I think it's fair to say they're still very much in the hunt for a title. That would not be the case if they didn't have Draymond Green. Uh, he has by far the best plus-minus plus on the team. Um, he consistently does every year, which kind of speaks to his value. He does all of the little things, um, and he's really been – huge with the young guys especially this year so yeah i definitely see him sticking around and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens because the warriors do have a salary cap crunch you know the luxury tax for them is getting absolutely unwieldy and they're going to have to make some tough decisions this offseason and there aren't a lot of guys that they can necessarily part with who have big enough salaries so they're going to have to get creative but i do think that draymond's going to stick around He's built up too much equity at this point. Yeah, is this, I mean, I don't want to say is this what he needed, but I kind of wonder, like, it just feels like Draymond is more comfortable when there's some some uh, controversy around him and there's some chaos around him and there's some there are people doubting him. He seems to focus more. I mean, is that a fair characterization? 100%. I mean, he's a guy who needs stakes, um, and he, he needs, something to kind of motivate him every single day. I covered the 2019-20 season when they were the worst team in the league and Steph was injured, and there was a huge chunk of that season where Draymond was the only kind of core guy available, and he was awful that year, absolutely awful. And he said after the season, yeah, it was awful because I didn't, no one, I didn't care. Like, there were no stakes, you know? Like, we weren't playing for anything, so why, why should I give my best effort and uh, this year, obviously, they're playing for a lot. He, he knows how valuable he is. But to your point, I do think there's that need and desire to silence the quote-unquote critics. You know, I think that's an overwrought uh, storyline in sports writing. But in this case, I think it's applicable. We're talking with Connor Letourneau, San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, does a fantastic job as a uh, senior writer there and a sports enterprise writer, formerly the beat reporter on that Warriors beat for a while. Uh, are the Warriors a contender this year in your mind? I think so. I, I definitely think so because who else really is? I mean, if the if the West wasn't as jumbled as it is and as flawed as it is, 
I would say they have no chance. But given the fact that there's been no clear team that has separated itself, why not the Warriors? I mean, they have the pedigree. Um, you know, it seems like they're figuring some things out. I think the way they've looked with Steph out over the past three weeks has been really encouraging. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think they have a shot. The Jordan Poole's relationship with Draymond, it, the impression was that these guys, they were they were close after Poole was drafted. And it, what happened there? Yeah, they were legit close. I mean, you know how it is when you're in a locker room every day. You can kind of tell who's just kind of work friends and who's actually friends. And they felt like real friends. So, I mean, Draymond uh, positioned his locker right next to Jordan's when Jordan got drafted and really took him under his wing, even though Jordan's a Michigan guy and obviously Draymond's a Michigan State guy. But I think that, um, you know, just Jordan's toughness and confidence and swagger really spoke to Draymond. And I know Draymond was really proud of how Jordan came back from the G League and emerged into this kind of all-star caliber player. Um, And so, I mean, I literally wrote a story last playoffs about how close they were and how that dynamic was playing out on the court. And then a few months later, this happened. Um, But I think, you know how life is. Sometimes you you blow up the most on the people you're closest to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that familiarity can kind of easily bleed into uh, animosity sometimes or, or what have you. I think in this case, Jordan was just probably in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, there was a real friendship there. I would be surprised if, if they fully get that back. But based off what we're seeing, I mean, it seems like they're at least cordial with each other. Now, he got kicked out last night, and I know, I know it comes on the heels of you writing the story, but it was that second tech was kind of a weak tech. Yeah, it was. I, there have been a lot of Draymond objections where it's like, uh, was that really like warranting an ejection? I mean, you you do kind of feel like there's a bias against them on the ref's side at times. Now, Connor, I uh, you know I want to move away from the NBA because you wrote a great story last year uh, about Aquira Da Costa, who was a high-level basketball recruit whose life took a a crazy turn uh, that you'd wish on no one. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that story? I know that you know it got a lot of run and a lot of play, but uh, she was kidnapped, sex trafficked. Uh, tell us what you know. Yeah, so Akira Acosta was the number two ranked women's basketball recruit, I believe, in the 2018 recruiting class. She was going to Baylor. She spent a little bit of time at Baylor, kind of bounced around, fell off the map. A lot of people, especially in women's basketball circles, kind of wondered what happened to Akira Acosta. Like, no one ever really heard from her over the past little while. And uh, I, I had heard that she resurfaced in the semi-pro league in the Bay Area and won, won MVP of the league. And so I just thought, okay, there's some sort of story there. So I went and met up with her, and about an hour into the interview, uh, she tells me that she was kidnapped and sold into a sex trafficking ring and pimped out on the streets of Sacramento, and actually all of I-5. She ended up in Portland at one point um, for three months and then escaped with the help of her family. So that was definitely probably the craziest story I've ever written in my life. I spent a straight month just focused on that. Um, And, 
you know, I was happy that we were able to get it out there. I'm glad you told that story. People want to read it, sfchronicle.com. You can find it pretty easily. Connor Letourneau, did you get home at all? Did you get back to the Portland area for Christmas, holidays, New Year, any of that? I uh, came back for uh, Thanksgiving. I actually drove up with the fiancé and the future stepkid and and I uh, got to visit the fam. Always love coming back to Portland. Love it, man. Hey, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, appreciate you coming on and making time for us. All right. Thank you. Anytime. Connor Letourneau, San Francisco Chronicle, senior writer. He's now doing Enterprise. Uh, he's got, uh, you know, obviously the experience in the background with the NBA, but you may remember him covering uh, Oregon State football, basketball, uh, working in the state of Oregon, growing up here. Uh, always good to touch base with Connor Letourneau. Uh, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll continue to talk about some recruiting. We will get a visit uh, from Brandon Huffman of 24-7 Sports, national recruiting editor. He's in San Antonio where he has seen firsthand some of the commits that are committed in the Pac-12. He's really got a handle on what is going on in the Pac-12. We talked to Greg Biggins earlier about uh, DJ and Mateo Unga, you know, Uyunglele, sorry, uh, that's going to be a recurring thing. But uh, we're now going to focus a little bit more on the Pac-12 conference and recruiting with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 sports, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, plus the 5 at 5, still ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Still no news out of Salt Lake City on Cam Rising and whether or not Utah's quarterback will come back for another season. Uh, Michael Penix Jr. at Washington is coming back for another season. Bo Nix at Oregon is coming back. Of course, you have um, you've got NIL money uh, that is uh, that is uh, involved in this. Uh, the top players in the country have until January 16th to declare their intention. So it may be a a, a wait of 10 or 11 days here for Cam Rising. Uh, and there may be some negotiating going on. But I think for players who we all view as fringe NFL prospects, and I think Bo Nix at Oregon would have made a roster, okay? And I think Cam Rising at Utah would make a roster. And that's based upon watching guys like Sean Mannion, Gardner Minshew, and you know, other Pac-12 quarterbacks make the jump to the NFL. That I think, I think Bo Nix makes a roster. Is, is Bo Nix a star player in the NFL? I don't think so. But I think Bo Nix has some money he can make at Oregon, and I think we're going to find out in the next you know, few months what maybe Bo Nix got to come back to Eugene. And I think it's going to all make sense to us, sort of the, the ecosystem of major college football. It's going to make sense to us. I think that money's out there for Cam Rising, but I think there's also some new pressure in Utah that may not have existed before. And you guys know we have Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune on this show all the time, and I follow him on Twitter. And and it's really interesting that like four hours ago, Newman was tweeting, and somebody was tweeting at him, going, you know, where where's the depth at quarterback? And of course, you know. Utah played a freshman 
in the Washington State game and and then played him again in the Rose Bowl. And it's uh, interesting to me to look at Bryson Barnes, who's got one start and threw three touchdown passes, and people are going, no, 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 we got a real problem. People in Salt Lake City are saying, we've got a real problem at quarterback if Cam Rising's not coming back. You know, I think Utah's talented enough, has good enough coaching, that if it's Bryson Barnes, because it will be Bryson Barnes at some point for Utah, and if it's Bryson Barnes at quarterback next season for Utah, it's not the end of the world, but it is going to not – I'm not going to pick Utah to win the conference with a first-time full-season starter at quarterback. Looks like a little bit of connection there. Uh, we'll get John back, but after this break, we will get John back on the line here. We'll have the 5-5 five and five right here on the BFT Radio Network. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Coming up, uh, we'll do the five at five. We will uh, interview a national recruiting analyst, Brandon Huffman, 24 7 Sports, does such a good job. He's in San Antonio, Texas, I believe, today. We talked with Greg Biggins earlier in the show. If you want to get the podcast of that, Biggins was with us in the 4 o'clock hour, as was Connor Letourneau. A really interesting discussion about Draymond Green. Can we put a bow on that, guys? Like, I know not everybody loves Draymond Green, but you love him if you're, he's on your team most of the time. And no question, he has moved away from where he was in the, po- in the preseason and become part of the solution at, with the Warriors again. Yeah, I think we can move past it. I did have a problem with you guys, both of you. Uh, you both said that uh, you know Draymond maybe didn't deserve to get thrown out. I think Draymond's gotten the benefit of the doubt with the referees a lot in his <laughs> career. So um, I disagree on that one. But, yeah, I think for the most part, I think we can look past the uh, the incident. But I will say the Warriors still you know in the play-in right now, not playing great. Uh, we'll be interested to see what they do going forward. I thought the first technical foul was way worse than the second. And – and then here's the thing, though. Like a friend of mine who's a big Warriors fan texted me today. And he was like, that's why you don't get the first tech because you don't put yourself in a, in a position to get tossed out of the game. And Draymond does that a lot. Yeah, totally. I, I think Draymond gets the benefit of the doubt a lot of times with the referees where he's allowed to express himself a little bit more. And that's just the way he plays, right? He plays with so much emotion. Um, yeah, but I think your friend's right on that one. Like if you're Draymond, you got to be careful. You get that first tech. You kind of got to pull it back a little bit. I know that's not the way he plays. That's not his style. He's even mentioned that, like, he'll never change the way he is. But when you get a first tech, like, you got to be ready to get that second one. The Warriors have been bad on the road this season. They're 3-16 and 16 on the road. Worst, uh, worst uh, record in the West on the road. It's weird. But part of that is flipped around by the fact that they are now 17-3 and three at home. Uh, they're in the nine spot if the season ended today. I think they're going to end up in the top four seeds in the West. Talk me out of that. Well, I, I can. I can say maybe it's just a championship hangover because if that's the case and you think about how old all these guys are, right, they've won numerous championships. They're in their mid-30s now. How motivated are they, are they to get into the top three, top four when they know they can go on the road in the playoffs and win basketball games, right? I, th- I think you're right that they won't be in the play-in because they don't want to you know, risk that. 
but they they're confident enough to be able to go on the road and win a series, say in Memphis or in Denver. That's not going to threaten them. They'll be ready to win that series. I don't necessarily think the top three is very important to them. When yeah, I look back 2015-2016, they won seventy three games. They finished with a seventy three and nine record, and it was you know the the most wins in an NBA regular season, and. Out of that, they did not win the NBA championship. They lost in the finals that year at 73-9. and I kind of looked at what they did after that, and I felt like they learned something from that experience. Like, they went for it, right? They went for the record. They beat the Bulls, you know, but they didn't win the championship. And I think, you know, maybe they learned something from that, and they come out of that going, hey, you know what? It, It isn't about being the regular season champion. That got us weary and tired and focused on the wrong things and we didn't win the championship and i kind of think that these guys you mentioned them being in their 30s maybe they're just at the point of their careers where they know yeah just we just need to be in the mix and and we'll figure it out from there well i think i think that's right and i think you can even look here in portland there's been a few games where dame I'm not going to say he coasted, but he didn't put out his full effort, and I think he knows, like, I don't have to do that night in and night out. Like, you need me healthy by the end of the season. I think Golden State knows that. Like, as long as those three guys, Clay, Draymond, Steph, if they're healthy by the end of the season, they're threatening the Western Conference. The Western Conference is so packed from 1 to about 11 right now in the West. Anybody could really come away with it. I think Golden State just knows if they get healthy by playoff time and they're in that top six, they don't have to play that play-in. I think they can beat anybody in the West, and I think they know that. And last year was a great example. I mean, they were they were fifty three and twenty nine last year, and they were third in the West. And you know, I kind of turned it on as I remember in the last two weeks of the season. I think they kind of came on at the end, and they jumped in front of like the Jazz and the Mavericks to move up to three. I kind of feel like they'll do that again this year. They just kind of go, okay, we need to flip the switch, but uh, they got to play better on the road. They just have not been a good road team. This brings us to the five at five. Five biggest stories going on. Let's do this. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. In no particular order today, Texas has fired Chris Beard, their coach. Head coach out. Less than a month after the school suspended him without pay, following his arrest on a domestic family violence charge. Remember, his fiance. Uh, on December 12th, claimed that he choked her, bit her, and hit her when they got in an argument. Beard was arrested. His fiance has subsequently recanted, saying he did not strangle me, and I told that to law enforcement. Uh, Chris uh, Beard says he's acting in self-defense that night. She does not refute that. This is classic. The Travis County District Attorney's Office uh, says that this matter is still under review. Prosecutors are still evaluating the evidence. They take this seriously, and apparently Texas does as well. They have fired Chris Beard. No doubt he will end up on somebody's staff in short order. That's how it works. But good on Texas for deciding, hey, they've got some kind of standard. You all have to decide what your standard is, and it can't be subjective. It can't be like TBS waiting to see what's going to happen with Dana White before they decide they're, whether they're okay or not with him slapping his wife on New Year's Eve on that video that TMZ released. Texas fires Chris Beard. Hey, John, do you think Chris Beard, because I said this, I think he might be the best coach in college basketball, does he get another Division One job? 
Yes. But I think he I think before that, he goes on he ends up on somebody else's bench. So somebody else brings him in and puts him on the bench. They kind of do a one year, you know, like a rehab uh, you know, type thing. Rehab, yeah. oh, I'm really sorry. They let they let the disposition of that domestic violence case go out and then everybody kind of moves on, but it's problematic and good on Texas for firing him because you know, that's a really good coach that they've fired, and they've just said, you know, we're not okay with this. Good on them. Meanwhile, doctors in Cincinnati, with the news of the day, really, say DeMar Hamlin is beginning to wake up. He's moving his hands and his feet, communicating via a notepad by writing out questions to doctors. He apparently and reportedly asked whether the Bills won the game on Monday night. And uh, the doctor who is in charge there, I'll let him speak to it. I'll let you hear his words. The doctor there in Cincinnati uh, basically pointing out that he won at the game of life. Here is uh, Timothy Pritz, one of the doctors there at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. You know, when he was communicating with us uh, last night and again today, that's been in writing. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase uh, one of our partners, you know, when, when he asked, did we win, the answer is, Yes, you know, Damar, you won. You've won the game of life. Uh, and that's probably the most important thing out of this. And we really need to keep him at the center uh, of everything else that's going on. And we really want to ensure a good outcome for him. Good outcome. Still praying for Damar and his family. But this is positive news. And doctors also saying that there doesn't appear to be any neurological damage, which uh, is a big milestone to overcome. Uh, number three in our five at five, let's talk Jim Harbaugh, Michigan coach. A lot of reports out there saying that Jim Harbaugh's got some interest in NFL coaching jobs. But Harbaugh in Michigan released a statement today saying he expects to coach the Wolverines next season. Expects to coach? Man, I expect to run a sub six-minute mile next week. Uh, the statement is very similar to what Harbaugh told reporters prior to the college football playoff game against TCU on Saturday. He's couching the statements, though, isn't he? He's basically saying, I don't know the future, but my expectation is that I'll be coaching. He's playing a game of semantics. And, Here was, yeah, go uh, ahead. And Nicole Auerbach, she tweeted out that uh, there's some investigation going on at the University of Michigan as well for the football program. There you go. All of it tied together. Here he is after the loss to TCU in the college football playoff semifinal. It was a great effort. Uh, by both teams, um, and you know, really proud of my team. Um, and one, uh, you know, one, one less big play, one more big play by us. Um, you know, one more opportunistic play uh, by us, one less opportunistic play by them, and it'd be, it'd be a, a different situation. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a great football game, and uh, congratulations to TCU and. Uh, they, um, and Coach Dykes and the entire squad. ESPN reported uh, earlier this week that Panthers owner David Tepper talked with Harbaugh about their head coaching position. Uh, conversation was not characterized as an interview, but this is not new for Jim Harbaugh. You know, remember, he interviewed with the Vikings in, in 2021 right before he signed a contract extension to stay as Michigan's head coach. Back-to-back -back Big Ten championships, consecutive appearances in the college football playoff. But uh, Jim Harbaugh apparently, uh, for now, expecting to be Michigan's coach.
I expect to uh, that uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna have a radio show tomorrow. But I pretty much know we are, right? Barring a catastrophe, we'll have the radio show tomorrow. Jim Harbaugh's not going that far, saying he expects to be at Michigan next season. Number four in our five at five. How about Michigan State? Remember that that skirmish at Michigan Stadium in the tunnel when Michigan State and Michigan played in October? Well. Kari Crump, who was facing a felony charge for his role in that deal, um, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor today and had his felony charge dropped in a deal with prosecutors. His record will be scrubbed clean, according to the report, if he stays out of trouble while on probation. Crump was one of seven Michigan State players who were facing charges. Uh, remember, Michigan beat Michigan State 29-7 to on October 29th, and a video came out after the game that showed Michigan State players pushing and punching and kicking a Michigan player, uh, two Michigan players in particular. Crump appeared in one of the videos to swing his helmet at a Michigan player. He also wrote a letter of apology to the player that he swung the helmet at. Now, Crump was suspended by Mel Tucker, Big Ten has suspended him for eight games next season. Defensive back had one tackle in four games this season. But uh, apparently he has uh, cut a deal with prosecutors. Finally, uh, I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier. This is number five. The TV debut of the Power Slap League. You could not make this up. It's run by UFC's Dana White. That Power Slap League was supposed to debut... Uh, on January 11th, next Wednesday, UFC telling reporters that the league will now debut on January 18th on TBS rather than on the 11th. Push back one week. Why? Why are they pushing it back? TBS not commenting on the New Year's Eve altercation involving Dana White and his wife. Slapped his wife on, on a video that was released by TMZ. Both he and his wife have publicly apologized. Uh, after the video surfaced. But uh, Dana White says, you've heard me say over the years, there is never, ever an excuse for a guy to put his hands on a woman. And there he was on TMZ talking about it, making no excuses while promoting a power slap league. It's a new venture for White. I'll be curious to see if uh, this flies with the public. Basically, the power slap league is a competition that has two people Alternating slaps to the face for three rounds. Or shorter if a knockout occurs. The Nevada State Athletic Commission has licensed the league, meaning that it is a regulated athletic competition. And Dana White, like this this belongs like on the onion. Like Dana White slapping his wife while promoting the power slap league. One of those things should never, ever happen. I'm not sure if Dana White knows which one. That's the 5 at 5. Coming up, we'll talk to Brandon Huffman, 24-7 national recruiting editor. I'm going to ask him about the Pac-12 in particular. What's going on with recruiting? You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest uh, covers recruiting nationally for 24-7 sports. 
He's on the go. Joining us live via satellite, Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports. Where are you today, man? I am in beautiful San Antonio for the All-American Bowl, which is on Saturday and the first of two All-American Bowl shifts this month. Give me an idea. When you go to these things, you're getting access to practice, you're watching these kids. What, are, what do you get to see, like, uh, you know, today? Yeah, so today, you know, you're getting to see day three of practice. You're seeing after the first two days of uh, guys that are, you know, trying to win the game, i.e. the coaches, doing install on the practices. Now you're seeing those guys put these plays to work and kind of put their game plan together for Saturday because while the players may look at it as an exhibition, these coaches are high school football coaches. They still want to win on Saturday. And so we're seeing that practice going into action before the game on Saturday. The, uh, you know, of the players that you've seen, obviously the game comes along and you get to see it. But, you know, do you get more out of the practice or the games? You definitely get more out of the game because that's at least at full speed. They're fully padded. You know, in, in years past, there was a lot more physicality involved in the practices. Now it's kind of almost like the Pro Bowl during the week. A lot more guys just in helmets and shells and not really going as full speed as you would normally expect. Maybe as it did 10 years ago, a lot of it's player safety. And, you know, let the game kind of be more of the judge. But in years past, we used to get a lot more out of the practices. There would be a lot more one-on-ones, a lot more, you know, three or seven-on-seven. Now it's just a lot more install. So the game is really now the highlight. We're talking to Brandon Huffman. Give us an idea. You know, Oregon has a quarterback that I think is down there. And, you know, uh, when you look at sort of the recruiting classes, we all hear about it on signing day. You know, but, uh, it, you know, if the Oregon Ducks are kind of looking at, you know, losing Dante Moore, but they end up uh, coming away with a quarterback that they feel really good about. And I'm blank. Novasad is the last yeah. name. I was blanking on his name. I don't know why. But give us an idea. You get a chance to see him. What do you think of him? Yeah, I've actually gotten to see him two, uh, each of the last three days. I've been watching the West practice, and, you know, he's got an arm. He can absolutely spin the ball. Uh, you know, he was telling us a, a story earlier in the week about just, you know, when he first met Will Stein, the new offensive coordinator at Oregon, was when he was in seventh grade, and Will Stein was coaching quarterbacks at a high school in Austin, and he went and worked out with him and actually got his second offer from Will Stein at UTSA uh, and then decided that when Will Stein made the move to Oregon that he wanted to go play for him. Wasn't going to go play for him at UTSA, but this is a kid that's you know, got some good size to him. Uh, we actually talked about Bo Nix. He said that he's really excited to spend a year working under Bo Nix and learning from Bo Nix and kind of, as he hopes, being taken under his wing so that he can develop under him and you know not be thrown into the fire right away in 2023, but be ready in 2024. And he's eager to spend some time. And, you don't hear a lot of quarterbacks like that. They want to play right away. He said, I'm still going to go in and compete, but I understand this is Bo Nix's offense, and I want to learn as much from him as I can. When you sort of saw Oregon signing day, Brandon, they you know, they had a really late flurry where they came out looking good, Dan Lanning smoking a cigar, all of that. But what, uh, what did you make of their success on signing day? Is it an NIL-driven thing? Is it Oregon's brand? Is it, is it the staff? What's going on there? No, because even before NIL was a factor in recruiting, Oregon has always been that school that did close with the flurry. I think you know maybe a year ago with the departure of Mario Cristobal, kind of the late hiring of Dan Lanning, you know, prior to signing day being just a few days away, maybe that was a little bit more of a quiet time. But then they get a guy like Josh Connolly, the number one tap in the country, a couple months later. But we're used to seeing Oregon close really well. They're not a school that you know puts all their eggs in the basket at the beginning of the recruiting cycle. They know when they're going toe-to-toe with a lot of national recruits and it gets a lot of national programs, 
they're going to have to play the long game. They're going to have to play until February, or they're going to have to play until December. And I think Oregon did a really good job of staying in a lot of key recruitments, and then it became it came to fruition on signing day, and I think they closed with a flurry. And, you know, they still may not be done. Nicholas Harbor, who's one of the top freak athletes in the country, Roger Pleasant, another elite cornerback. Both guys are track and field guys. So Oregon's still in the mix for both those, and they're going to wait until February, so they may not even be done yet. You know, we always talk about coaching, and you know, we we look at X's and O's, but you live in this recruiting world. Um, as you look at the Pac-12 conference, just the staffs in general, some places probably are more conducive to, you know, having more success with recruiting. I'm sure if you are you put a great recruiter in a great situation like USC or Oregon or somewhere else, they're, they're going to have success. But what did you see, by and large, across the conference on, on that early signing period? You know, surprisingly, it's been interesting because you have the schools that you expect to recruit well, the, the USC, the Oregon's. You have Washington, which historically had recruited well, other than the transition year under Jimmy Lake. You had Chip Kelly, you know, showing like he did at Oregon where he could go out and get a top player in the country, even though the class may not have been big as, at large. But now we're starting to see Utah really start to establish themselves as a top 20, top 25 recruiting program. Instead of being the, the school that develops and evaluates the guys really well and maybe being in the 40th and 50th range, now they're benefiting from back-to-back Pac-12 championships, and they ended up with the top 25 class. We're seeing Oregon State, who relied so heavily on JUCOs, so heavily on the transfer portal early on in John Smith's career, now only getting maybe one or two guys from the JC ranks, getting a couple guys out of the portal, but now realizing that this is his program, this is his team, this is the guys that he's developed, and not relying so much on immediate help, but now being able to bring some guys in to develop them and then maybe be a little bit more picky and choosy. And then the surprising part is, with one of the best classes I've seen come from the Bay Area in maybe a decade, Cal finished dead last in the Pac-12, and that's a little bit weird. We're not used to seeing Cal have that much disappointment in the recruiting, but this year was a tough year for Cal recruiting-wise. What can Cal and Stanford do to, to keep pace in the conference? Well, you know, even today, Cal got a commitment from J.T. Byrne, who's a former tight end at Oregon State. He's from Northern California. Cal's going to have to play the portal game hard because they're losing guys to the portal. J. Michael Sturdivant has been the best recruit that Justin Wilcox ever signed. Very productive his first two years, but he goes into the portal yesterday. So Cal's going to have to continue to rely on the portal. Stanford needs to get into modern times. The reality is that they've only gotten one – before this year, they've only gotten one player from the portal ever – he actually walked onto the program, got into grad school on his own. But Stanford has got to be a school that's going to be willing to get into the portal game. They've got endowment money that is going to last them a lifetime. They have the potential to use it for NIL, but I don't know that Stanford is choosing to. So they're going to have to get modern with NIL, and they're going to have to get modern with allowing the transfer portal to help them. Otherwise, they're going to keep losing 16 to 20 guys every year and not be able to backfill those spots. Oregon State uh, brings in uh, DJ Uyengalele, and uh, Oregon gets Mateo. Um, we've talked a lot about those two guys. Can you talk about DJ just a little bit and what you think he will do and how he fits with Jonathan Smith at Oregon State? I think it's a great match. I think Jonathan Smith is, is kind of a quarterback whisperer, if you will. He's a guy that's going to be you know, calm with, with DJ. There's, not going to be, there's going to be some pressure on DJ because he's going to be a high-profile target, but nowhere near the pressure that he underwent at Clemson. And, you know, if you look at DJ's stats in a vacuum, he actually had a pretty good career at Clemson. But when you have Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson preceding you and the success those guys had winning national championships, 
then maybe compared to those guys, it doesn't look great. But he also had dealt with multiple offensive coordinators, the much less receiver talent, a horrific offensive line compared to what Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence had. Now that change of scenery could be the best thing in the world that ever happened to DJ. And I really think he's going to flourish under Jonathan Smith because I think personality-wise, Jonathan Smith's going to be the guy that's going to be much more calm, much more collected. And I think that's what DJ needs, just a different voice in his ear, a different change of scenery, and something that's going to allow him to become the player we all have seen him be at some point in his high school career. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because he won't, in that offense, they're not asking him to come in and carry that thing. Like, it, it, it pretty much ran. I don't want to say it ran without a quarterback because that would be disrespectful to Ben Gulbertson and what he did as a freshman. But, it, it you know, it's not quarterback-centric if it doesn't have to be. But I'm really curious to see what it's going to look like with a guy who's got, you know, some extra skill set. With the other thing that I think people don't understand is just how bad Clemson's offensive line has been the last two or three years. Even with Trevor Lawrence's last year, when Clemson made it to the playoffs, when DJ actually took over for a game for Trevor Lawrence when he had COVID and almost beat Notre Dame on the road, that line started to show signs. And then if you watched the Clemson-Georgia game in the opener last year, yes, it was a generational defense for Georgia, but you started to see some big leaks on the offensive line for Clemson. So he spent the last two years essentially running for his life when we're used to Clemson having dominant offensive lines. Now he comes to school with one of the best evaluators and developers of offensive line talent in the conference, and maybe not just in the conference, but in the country, in Jim Mahalchuk. Now he's going to have time to sit his feet. Now he's going to have time to be patient in the pocket. Now he's going to have time to go through his progressions, things that he didn't really have a chance to do at Clemson. Dante Moore is at the All-American Bowl. How much are you getting to see of him and what did you make of him flipping to UCLA? Well, I thought it was interesting because, you know, when you see an elite top-tier quarterback flip to a school in the Pac-12 in Los Angeles, it's usually USC. So, you know, at once, uh, I think when you look back at Chip Kelly historically, when he flipped Anthony Thomas from USC to Oregon or the next year when he got Eric Armstead, he does have a history of maybe getting one elite player every couple of years. So that wasn't his form, but – for UCLA to be so out of the mix to then Dante Moore deciding, hey, this is the place I want to be. Obviously, Caleb Williams' impact in Los Angeles certainly didn't hurt, but he's been every bit as advertised. He's the highest-rated player here, highest-rated uh, quarterback in the game. And on Tuesday after, or on the Wednesday after the second day of practice, it was clear he had separated himself as the top quarterback there. Now, Oregon State fans get excited. Aiden Childs is probably been the second-best quarterback here, but Dante Moore has definitely lived up to the high. He's been really the true alpha dog here at quarterback. Brandon Huffman with us, 24-7 Sports. He's the national recruiting editor. I know we have talked over the years about your daughter, Avery. You've got a seven-on-seven tournament that is happening in February. Uh, First, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Avery and what she went through and and kind of, you know, how you're keeping her legacy alive? Absolutely. I appreciate that opportunity. In 2015, on June 30th, uh, we were given a diagnosis after what was a normal, you know, six and a half years where no health issues at all, uh, an inverted eye, which we thought might have just been affecting her vision, turned out to be a terminal brain tumor that took her life seven and a half months later. She was able to go through radiation, through a number of different infusion treatments, but ultimately succumbed to the disease. 
three, she passed away on February 16, 2016. By the end of June, uh, we had established the Avery Huffman DITG Foundation. And in just under seven years, we've raised nearly a million dollars uh, for research for doctors around the world. Over 30 hospitals around the world have been able to uh, benefit and do different projects based on her tumor that we donated to research, but also the funds that we've raised for hospitals to be able to do this research in. We're seeing a big impact and a big difference in the treatment plans for children that are going through brain cancer, including at Seattle Children's Hospital, which is one of the places where we donated her or her tumor to. And so we're able to see the action being put into works, and now these kids are able to have an extended life and more treatment opportunities that she didn't get when she was diagnosed. So even though she wasn't here to maybe get the, uh, the end result we were hoping for of finding a cure, we're now seeing doctors being able to do many things that could allow other families that if they ever are given this diagnosis, they have better options and longer-lasting treatment plans. You know, Brandon, I appreciate you. You're a normal, uh, you know, you're a dad, you're, you're a regular person, and, you, you know, you happen to do this sports job. But, you know, I, I'm on the website right now, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to go there, AveryStrongDIPG.org, uh, the Avery Huffman DIPG Foundation. Uh, you can make a donation there. You can find out a little bit about Avery. Um, I'm telling you, I got glassy eyes right now, Brandon. You know, I, every time we talk about this, I have three daughters, and uh, you know, I commend you for the strength that you and your family have in 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 keeping her mission alive and and continuing to do stuff. I know the event; it's a seven on seven event, and it's going to raise some money. But if people just want to make a donation, you can go to AveryStrongDIPG.org. To make a donation, you can do it now. Do it during the break, Brandon. I appreciate you joining us uh, as you do often, and keep keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks for letting me share about Avery. I appreciate that so you, much. You bet. Uh, I'd rather talk about that than football anytime. Uh, Brandon <laughs> Huffman, thank you, man. Uh, good stuff. Look, I'm literally on the website right now. I'm gonna make a donation during the commercial break, and you know, I didn't plan on doing this. I didn't plan on you know, I but I've known about. You know, I've known Brandon from a distance for many, many years, and we've brought him on the show over the years. And I, you know, I know when he talked about Avery just a couple of years ago. Um, you know, you could tell. You could tell when he's talking about a prospect and a player, and then we start talking about his daughter. And and I would challenge you to go to that website, and I would challenge you to look at her photograph and and not be moved just by seeing that little girl and that smile, and to think about the loss that that family suffered and. The legacy that they're trying to create in helping other people. Again, it's AveryStrongDIPG.org. That's the website. Check it out. We'll be back. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Show sailing along. Tomorrow's Friday. We'll have a great Friday show, as we always do. I don't like you going into the weekend doing anything else but uh, feeling loose and free and carefree and in a good mood. Uh, what do we have coming up top of the hour, Stephen, right here on 750 The Game? We got the polls with Peter Sampson once again, third straight day, feeling good. Peter Sampson, is he stretching out? Peter, are you stretching out? Are you oh, ready to do this? I'm getting all loose right now. I, I just got out of the ice bath, and now I'm treating it with some heat. I'm doing some deep lunges here in the studio. I'm ready. Good, good. Yeah, those deep lunges are tough. <laughs> they um, are, man. Hey, let me, for, for last night, I, 
I had to run off because we were going to see Avatar, mm. the sequel. I didn't get the story on why your car got left downtown this this week. What happened with your car? Yeah, so we finish up the show. We transition to my show, do it. every. We wrap up the same way, you know, pack up. And here I go give Stephen Vaughn a fist bump for a job well done. And, and the thing is, is in the afternoons, a lot of the times, I'll have the kiddo in studio with me. I pick him up from school. He hangs out at the radio station with me. So... I'm parked because it was just a kind of a shorter afternoon shift, your show, my show. I'm just parked on the street a couple blocks away. We're walking out. It's dark. It's wet. And as I approach the car a couple blocks away, I see a bunch of lights. Now, I'm parked next to the unsafe way downtown. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> on a, scary safe way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scary safe And I think, yeah. oh, something went down at Safeway. What's new? I get closer. It's not a police car. It's not an ambulance. It's like at least a dozen fire trucks and it's super smoky in the air and i see the old korean church there built in 1905 is absolutely ablaze i mean it, massive fire wow. so i get to my car and as i'm walking to it i realize i am completely pinned in here there is like this street is closed my car is the only car within two blocks I am not getting out, so I, I kind of don't know what to do. I put my bags in my car. I realize that's dumb. Take my bags out. Walk back to the station. Ask uh, the guys at Sister Station KXL, the news station here, hey, do you know what's gone, going on? Of course we do. It's a massive three-alarm fire. I go back. It's. I realize this is such a giant thing. There's no way, unless I want to wait here until midnight, and we don't even know if it's going to be done, that I'm going to get my car home. So I just hop a bus. I eventually get home. I have to wake up bright and early. I'm paying for parking. I'm worried about getting a parking ticket because it's even if you pay for parking, the no offense to the uh, the parking meter attendants here, but man, they would consider it feeding the meter. But more than that, I'm parked overnight. Next to the unsafe way, man. I've seen a dude holding a spear at that grocery store, yeah, so I'm terrified. Yeah. I come in. All's well that ends well. No, no damage to the car. The, the church is uh, a different story, though. I got in a. Uh, I got in an altercation at that Safeway. <laughs> what happened? I was, I was going down, so I was doing Sports Sunday on KGW, which is just down the street. It's like three blocks away from there, and it was late on a Sunday night. And I was driving, and I had drove in front of the scary Safeway, unsafeway. And I was making the left turn. I think it's Jefferson that yeah. runs on that side of the Safeway. I was making the left turn onto Jefferson to head towards the KGW Studios. And there was a guy who was crossing the street, and he was jaywalking. But I slowed down to let him go in front of me. And I kind of looked at him like... What are you doing? Because, you know, if I hadn't been paying attention, it was one of those nights where, you know, obviously it's dark. It's not a well-lit area. And he's all in dark clothes. And he's jaywalking. And so I was like, man, I'm lucky I saw the guy. Because normally, uh, you know, there's a it would have been a little dicey. So I make the left turn onto Jefferson. And he's yelling at me. And I'm like, I don't know if he's mentally ill. I don't know if he's, you know, dangerous. I don't know. You know, the guy's yelling at me. So I just keep going. But I'm watching in my rearview mirror. He's like a block behind me. Mm -hmm. He's in the middle of the street like like it's a Star Trek episode, and he's William Shatner walking down the street with his, you know, phaser, his, you know, you know, his taser on stun, and he starts running towards me. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror going, is he going to reach me before the light goes 
green. And I'm kind of estimating the distance, and I'm looking at him, and I'm going, gosh, he, he's faster than he looks, you know, and he's, it, and he's got long hair, and he's running, and he looks angry. And the light turns green, and so I advance to the next light, and it's red. He's still running. So now he's on his second block, and he's running like a madman towards me. I felt like I was in one of those zombie thriller movies, and he's coming after me. So I finally just put the car in reverse. And I started going the wrong way on that one-way street towards him. And that's when he stopped and he ran in the other direction. But I don't know if I was going to do if he didn't turn around. Like, I don't know if I wanted that confrontation. You know what I mean? I don't think I was going to win that. Yeah, it's one of those things when you imagine it, you're like, yeah, I could take care of myself. And once it once it actually is going to go down, no thank you. And, yeah, it, it's always that block, John, always. The scouting yeah. report sounded like he was a sneaky good athlete. <laughs> sneaky good edge rusher. Uh, I, would, I would put him on special teams. Because he could run he goes after the ball line. really good. Yeah, he get a, He would not be afraid to be the the guy who breaks the wedge. You know, he'd be that guy. <laughs> but but in my mind, I'm going. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm about to go. You know, be on TV and talk about football or whatever. This guy is you know minding his business on a Sunday night, jaywalking, and he's suddenly angry at me, even though I let him go in front of me. But I'm I'm imagining like, do I go Ray Donovan on him? Do I pull out my Green Easton that's in the back of my car and, you know, walk down the street <laughs> towards him? Or, do, you know, is there any good that can come of that? Let's say there is an altercation. Let's say there is, you know, like, I'm not going to end up looking like I was the Good Samaritan in that in that equation. So I was glad that he kind of backtracked when he saw me reverse and go the other way. All right. We saw Avatar last night. I'm not even going to make you wait on the commercial break. I'm going to tell the story now. We're talking three hours and 20 minutes, okay? That's approximately the runtime of that movie. It might be 3.12, but it, it was more than three hours, okay? It's an investment to go see that movie. Um, I'm going to rate it. I'm going to rate it. I'm going to say it's a 77 on my 1 to 100 scale. Uh, when I was in college, I told Anna this. She said, you know, we always leave the movie. She says, what do you think of the movie? Um, and this is what I said to her. We're walking out of the theater. We're walking back towards the car. And I said, when I was in college, there was a food truck that used to come out at 2 o'clock in the morning and hang outside the bars. And this food truck served burritos. And the gimmick that the food truck had was the burritos were massive. They were giant. They, you couldn't eat it. And, in fact, if you did finish the burrito, they would take a Polaroid picture of you and put it on the side of the truck. And there were a few Polaroids on the side of the truck. But most of us, about a third of the way through that burrito, would surrender and go, it's just too much burrito. I felt that way in the movie. It was great special effects. The story was not bad. But it's just too much movie for one sitting. It made me feel like, you know, this is too, like, you know, you've been to a buffet and you want to get your money's worth. So you stay to the end of the movie, but it's just too much movie. And if you love the first Avatar, you'll love it, and you'll be into it. But for, for me, just too much movie. I could have shaved an hour out of that movie and been better off. That's how I felt about it. Needed an editor. Did. It did. And, it, and I don't want to spoil any of it. I'm not going to give any spoilers, any plots, any of that. It's fine. It's a decent movie. It's just the burrito's too big. You can't eat it in one sitting. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Peter Sampson and the Pulse coming up top of the hour. Should be a lot of fun to see what Peter Sampson is going to do with this show. Uh, I, I encourage you to check it out um, if you are a listener on 750 The Game. Uh, if you are interested in a podcast, Stephen, you got a podcast going on. And people keep tweeting at me about it. Are you guys still doing the podcast? We are, yeah. It's uh, the Believe, Believe in, in Blazers. Yeah, Blazers. Believe in Blazers podcast. Uh, myself and Tori Jones, we are uh, talking Blazers usually about once a week. Uh, we should have one episode dropping here pretty soon, so uh, be sure to check that out. All right, check that out. Stay, leave it here for the Pulse and Peter Sampson coming up. Did I talk you guys out of Avatar or into Avatar? I've actually never, I'm with Steven, I think you also have never seen Avatar. It's one of those things, I missed it when it was huge, yeah. and then at a certain point, it just becomes sort of a little badge of honor. Someone talks about what at the time was the biggest movie of the, you know, in the history yeah. of cinema, and you go, ah, I've never seen it. Yeah, I was uh, I was out, and then over, you say over three hours, and now I'm really out. That just seems like a lot of movie for, uh, you know, just a lot of movie for me. And then, you know, you guys have heard me talk about the Regulator Cups, right? The Regal Cinemas Got to get cup one, yeah. That, yeah, I bought the damn thing years and years ago, and the deal was it's for life. It, you know, they, they give you this plastic cup, costs you 20 bucks in, like, 1995, and then you get $1 sodas, 32-ounce soda, for life. Um, but there's a little catch to this because uh, I bring, you know, I have two of these cups, we bring them everywhere. We're very careful with them because, you know, I, even if I don't want soda, I got to do it because it's only a dollar. I got to get my money's worth. I'm like a guy at a buffet cutting to the end, going right to the uh, carving station. And so uh, uh, we, uh, several months ago, brought the Regal Cups to the our local Regal Cinema, and they said, oh, we have to trade those out because they had switched from Coke products to Pepsi products, and the cups were branded with Coke. And so they said we gotta tr we gotta trade that out, which felt weird to me, because I'm like, why does that matter, if they are filling up a you know a, co a cup that has just a little Coke branding, just had a little Coke logo on it, and but it had like a Regal logo, and these were sturdy, heavy duty cups, and they traded it out for flimsier plastic cup, looks just like uh, you know kind of like a, a cup you'd get at Taco Bell, and uh, it's got that plastic, but it's a thinner plastic. Well, last night when we went to fill up the soda, I proudly pulled it out, and uh, Vinny was the uh, was the uh, employee that was working there at the Regal Cinema last night. He uh, fills it up with Coke, or Pepsi rather, and uh, he sets it on the counter. And all of a sudden, I noticed it's leaking, like there's a leak in the cup. I'm horrified. And he says, "Is the cup leaking?" And I said, I think it is leaking. And Anna says, it's definitely leaking. Look, it's leaking on the counter. And he goes, I don't know if I can replace that. So he goes down and he huddles up with the manager. This is a very, I'm very nervous now. I don't know if I've been this nervous in some time. Because I'm like, are they going to tell me they can't replace the cup? Like, is this Regal's little way to get out of these lifetime, hey, we're going to give you a soda for life for a dollar because you bought the cup back in the day. And the manager says, I'm not supposed to do this, but he says, I am going to do it because he says, I understand what Regal's trying to do. He says, they're trying to get rid of these cups. He says, they have traded out the heavy-duty plastic for a thinner 
flimsier version of plastic. Guys, they're trying to scam us out of the cups. But the manager was nice enough, and he said, I'm just going to trade it out. I'm not supposed to do it. He says they gave us the directive to not trade these out. That's such a scam by Regal. I feel like I should get him on the show and have a confrontation with him about it. Bro, before you brought up, or when you first brought up the cups, I was going to ask you if they swapped it out because I've been hearing about that. And never forget, Regal's parent company has declared bankruptcy. And even if they're saving, you know, three cents on sugar water with every customer that has one, eventually that will turn a profit. My my spidey senses are tingling, John. Yeah, they're well, trying I, to get out of the deal. I mean, what if this cup now gets a hole in it? Like, what is, what's going to go through your mind? Are you just going to try to hope that a manager is going to give you one? Are you going to go home, duct tape it? Like, I had a thought. Flex seal? I, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Tell <laughs> oh, me if this is, tell me if this is bad. Okay, so... I'm thinking I bring the real Regal Cup to the theater, and then I also bring a second cup, and they fill it, and then I just pour it into the other cup, and I never really utilize the plastic cup other than to get them to pour the soda into it initially. <laughs> Is that going too far? I like it. I, I like it. You got the second. You got the second shooter out there. The second gun. Or, you know, the second cup. But uh, there's a lot of cups to bring to a movie, John. I mean, what are you? What are you? What are you hiding this under your shirt? What are you doing? No, no, Anna. Anna made. Purse? No, Anna made me a bag. It's kind of this little satchel, and it holds the cups. And it says the regulator on the side of it. She gave it to me for Christmas one year. So Anna's not a. Anna's not above bringing stuff into the theater. I remember hearing a story years ago. She wasn't she like making sandwiches once for a big group of people in the she, theater. She uh, one year I okay and and this is embarrassing, but she brought a hamburger into the into the thing, and I'm not talking about like a McDonald's hamburger. She had like a big double cheeseburger, and she's popping open the carton, making sounds. You know, she's eating like it like it's a Carl's Jr.'s commercial. And I'm like, there's everyone in the theater knows what we are doing. What we are doing here, you can't get away from that. So, um, yeah, she uh, she'll bring some stuff into the theater. Like last night, we were well aware. It's three hours. I'm like, we're gonna need snacks. I'm gonna need. I'm gonna need hydration. Yeah, and nine dollars worth of Sour Patch Kids just isn't yeah. gonna do it, man. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's it. So anyway, uh. I think what we do is I I get a second cup, like a second shooter. I like that. And then I I fill up the regulator, and I turn from the concession tank because it's not their business after they fill it. And then I pour it into the other cup, and I put my regulator back in there with the uh, with some bubble wrap around it <laughs> and keep it. I'm going to be 90 years old. I'm going to be outside the Regal Cinemas going, I want my $1 soda. I don't care if they go bankrupt. I want my $1 soda. That, that's where we're at. All right, leave it here. Peter Sampson and the Pulse is coming up. You got the bald-faced truth. We're back tomorrow with another great show.